name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro Amazing Spider-Man 2, I'm proud to say that, and pro John Lithgow podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. My, 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 we've gotten a real handle on it this year. Uh, we did it in, I believe it was March? No, uh, April. April. Last year. Shit. We did, we did this episode in April last year. That was our best of 2022. Uh, we've decided to get a jump on it because the further we, further away we get from the end of the year, uh, the more difficult it becomes. Uh, so, of course, we are now going to be looking at our favorite films of the year, 2023. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Um, well, I have two movies from the cinemas to talk about first up. Uh, one of them is Argyle. It is an action comedy directed by Matthew Vaughan, and it follows a spy novel author named Ellie Conway, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. She is attacked by a group of mysterious people and is saved by an eccentric man named Aiden, played by Sam Rockwell, who turns out to be a real-life spy. And uh, he's trying to protect her because it turns out her books have actually been coming true. And so everyone wants her latest manuscript because they think it's going to predict some sort of geopolitical event or some intrigue within different spy agencies. Uh, so the two of them flee, pursued by the rogue secret agency, The Division, led by the unscrupulous Ritter, played by Brian Cranston. Um, this is Matthew Vaughan doing what he does, but without a lot of the bite. This is a PG-13 film. It's very much a watered-down version of uh, Vaughn's usual shtick, and I do think that it uh, suffers a little bit for that. It has a wacky premise that I kind of wish they'd lent into more than they do. Um, there is some ways in which they choose not to really lean into some of the craziness that's inherent in the idea, uh, but there are some fun twists and turns along the way. It has a moment that I really hope isn't spoiled for you guys um, before you see the film. It it does have some beats that can surprise, but it can drag a little in spots. The, the central dynamic between Ellie and Aiden is fun, even though it's not completely convincing. They're sort of trying to set up romantic tension, which I just don't see between Rockwell and Harwood, but they are quite uh, good together on screen. It's amusing, but it's not hilarious. Again, this all kind of feels like a filtered-down version of Kingsman or Kick-Ass or something that uh, Vaughn has done previously. But he has a massive cast here at his disposal, a very good one, and often in very small roles. Samuel L. Jackson, Henry Cavill, John Cena. I mean, Henry Cavill in particular is so little in it. He's like so absent from huge parts of it, and you think, well, how did they get him? Um, but uh, you begin to wish, actually, that they were making better use of this cast. Uh, but there's some extremely dodgy CGI as well. I mean, really, really poor CGI. Super, super noticeable. That was noticeable in the Kingsman movies as well, particularly that yeah. second one. This one stood out a lot more than the Kingsman for me. But it's got a very great use of licensed music, which is a forte of Vaughn's. Um, it does, however, very presumptuously set up a series, albeit without hanging threads. It sort of ends with the the tease of more and the they tell you where they're going to take it, but the story of this film is resolved. Um, 
I can't help but feel like it would have been better to bring some of the stuff that they're clearly planning into this first movie, because honestly, it seems more interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fun. It's just, you know, you get the feeling like Vaughn is trying to move into a space or operate in a space that doesn't suit his sharper edges. And as a result, he's had to sort of bubble wrap them and it's not mm. panned out. Uh, the other movie I saw was Force of Nature. It's a mystery film directed by Robert Connolly. It's based on the book of the same name by Jane Harper. It follows an Australian federal police detective named Aaron Fork, played by Eric Banner. Uh, he's managing an informant named Alice Russell, played by Anna Torv, who is reluctantly getting information on the investment firm she works for. But that firm is holding a corporate retreat. And uh, so she goes on this corporate retreat just as she's about to retrieve the most incriminating pieces of data. And uh, five women, including Alice, go on a group hike in the Victorian mountain ranges and Fork come out and Alice is not with them. She's gone missing. Um, and Fork comes up to help investigate. Uh, this is a really strong Aussie mystery movie. It's a sequel to a movie I talked about a few years back called The Dry. Um, and uh, it has actually almost embarrassed by itself. It has been putting force of nature and then slowly fading in under it, the dry two, under every trailer, every poster, which is absolutely ridiculous because the dry took place in the middle of the Australian like outback desert, in the middle of a drought, so it's all like dusty and and you know deserty. But here they're just in the Victorian rainforest, <laughs> like, um, and so. You really, it's very clear, like the actual film itself doesn't even have that titling. It's just Force of Nature when the title comes up. It doesn't have the dry to. It really does read like the studio thinking, but what if people don't know that it's a sequel to The Dry? Um, I think they should have just called it an Aaron Fork mystery, um, mm. but such is life, you know, Force of Nature and Aaron Fork mystery. That anyway, makes it more literary. Yeah, but... This is better than the first movie, in my opinion, and it's more my setting also. It's claustrophobic and it's creepy this time around. The first was Aussie noir. This is Aussie gothic. Mm -hmm. um, it's very clever in the way it approaches its story, and the structure of the script is quite smart as well. There are three separate timelines that we're seeing. The first is the present. It's Aaron Fork coming to investigate after this disappearance has happened. The second is these flashbacks that you see of the group traveling through the forest that Fork receives um, as he is interviewing the other four women who have made it out. Um, and then the third timeline is sort of flashbacks to Fork's own experiences in that same area when he was a child hiking with his mother and father. Um, I do think that it could have lent into the Rashomon element a little bit more. It kind of hints at it, but only once that, you know, the, there's this, people twisting the story to present themselves the best mm. fashion. I think they should have lent into that big time. I think that should have been a big, big element where you saw the same scene from multiple different angles. I thought that would have been much more interesting. Um, but uh, it's the stuff in, with Fork's background, his history as a child there, where basically his they got separated from his mother while they were out in, the, um, in this same area. And um, they spent days trying to find her. Uh, that's the stuff that lends a really fascinating element to the contemporary events that are happening. Mm. And it sort of, it, it leaves you to wonder, Jesus, how bad was this guy's childhood? Because in the first movie, he's like 
back in his hometown and everyone there still thinks he murdered a girl when he was a teenager. So I'm thinking, well, what childhood trauma will be the thematic uh, symbolism for the next mystery? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, what's very interesting is this element and that what contributes greatly to the Gothic sense of it is that these forests, these mountains, were once the hunting ground of an Ivan Malat sort of serial mm. killer where he would take his victims. He would take backpackers and hitchhikers. And, so there uh, are ghost stories about that place. Yeah. And that basically the women have come out of the, the woods and they're saying, well, we found a hut on like the third day and there was like a bloodstained mattress and what appeared to be graves. Oh, that's um, not good sure. luck. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, this serial killer's long ago been apprehended. He's in prison. He's not a presence in the story, mm. but it, like the idea of of this as an evil place, as a place yeah. where bad things happen to people. The place sort remembers of, it. The place remembers it. It creates this, uh, you know, this additional gothic feeling, especially when you get to the stuff that's going on in the flashbacks to Falk's childhood, because it's heavily, heavily, heavily implied that the disappearance of his mother is connected to the serial killer mm. um, who was still operating at the time. The movie leaves it very, very ambiguous as to whether um, he is actually responsible for it or not. What the movie doesn't leave ambiguous is I think we're very clearly supposed to mention, we're supposed to take the idea that uh, he did encounter them in the woods and watch them. Um, so, But it creates this sort of creepy feel. It creates this... Uh, it kind of gave me a bit of picnic at Hanging Rock vibes mm, in terms of that's cool. not not a not nearly anything supernatural like Picnic at Hanging Rock is, but the sense that the the bush itself, the rainforest itself, is a dangerous place and is set against them, like kind of a Nightingale vibe. I haven't seen that movie, but I'll take your word for it's it. It's Quite uh, good. It's really the most effective part of the story. Um, it does try and do some stuff that uh, feel current to the present socio-political concerns a lot of the time it falls flat though they try and set up some commentary on policing uh and police handling of informants the way the public views police now it doesn't work because they don't lean hard hard enough into into it and they don't calibrate it enough so it's supposed to be this whole thing where oh did they push alice too far that she made a mistake were they right to lean on her because she's cooperating with them because she's would be charged if if they brought this place down without her. Like she's doing it for her immunity. And the problem is, is that they through all of these different timelines, Alice is just deeply unlikable. Does not seem to regret any of the things she's done at all. Um, and Fork is never ever depicted as being as a, as being you know sort of hard nosed enough um, to make us think that he's gone too far in his role as a as an officer um so it's the way that it's threading that line undercuts the uh the effectiveness of that particular thing but it's got a strong cast sometimes they struggle with the clunky dialogue of the script but we have sent our best for this richard roxburgh is in it he is underused he's sort of playing the guy who's who's the head of this finance company and so of course he's a big suspect um but uh they get so much production value out of shooting in these rainforests, in these mountains. Uh, just a beautiful landscape. It gives such scope. It's a really incredible setting. Yeah, it's a really good movie. It's a really strong movie, and um, I recommend it. 
it's a, a very solid Australian uh, mystery. Would you recommend uh, The Dry as well? I would, yeah. You don't need to have seen one to see the other. Um, it's they are very like the even though this is a sequel, it doesn't even reference the events of the the first film. This is simply he he is a detective and he is now on a different case that is completely unrelated to that case. Uh, but yeah, I recommend it at home. Um, well, I had a very Shakespeare heavy week last week, and I also touched on Shakespeare this week. Only one though, uh, a production of Twelfth Night. It is a comedy directed by Barry Average. It's a pro shot of the Shakespeare play of the same name done by the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. Um, and it follows Viola, played by Andrea Runge. She's shipwrecked on the coast of Illyria and loses her brother, thinking that he's died in the shipwreck. She is alone and scared, so she disguises herself as a man and goes into service with the local lord, Duke Orsino, played by Mike Shara, who she falls in love with. But of course, he thinks that she's a man. So uh, he sends her as a messenger to woo Olivia, uh, played by Sarah Topham, this local lady that he wants to marry. But Sarah Topham falls for Viola, who is pretending to be a man, instead. Uh, also, none of them know that her brother, Sebastian, played by Trent Party, is still alive and wandering around the island. And now that she's disguised as a man, they basically look identical. Um, so, yes, hijinks ensue. This is such an outstanding production. It it leans into the music breaks a lot. This was a very musical Shakespeare play. There are a lot of moments where the characters take out a, a lute and start playing and singing. And... Um, They've really made that the focus here. They've actually scored it as a musical, kind of. Um, it's really well done. It's really fun, really catchy. I actually was very disappointed to learn that there was no soundtrack uh, available online. But uh, the aesthetic is very cleverly handled as well. It's it's an, um, a modern aesthetic. It, it, it doesn't sort of adopt the old 1600s 1500s mode of dress and background instead it sort of creates Illyria into this almost Hamptons-esque rich person island um, where people are playing golf and tennis they're wearing expensive suits and dresses um, and the costumes and the production design of it are really really strong it imbues a, uh, a the story with such life and energy this is the third version I've seen um one being the, the movie, uh, the second being one I've seen live, and then this being the third. And, and this is the most fun version of it. This is one that really leans into the, the hijinks, the comic angle. There's extremely witty, writy, witty writing um, that's uh, handled, um, you know, it, it's amusing with when you just hear it spoken or, or see it written down, it's got that kind of intellectually amusing things, but these actors, they take it and they make it funny. They make it laugh out loud, funny with their performances because they have an exceptional cast. The leads are all very strong, especially Runge and Shara. Um, the comic relief element of it really steals the show though. You, you get uh, these basically, you know, carousing layabouts um, played by Brian Dennehy and, Stephen Ume, um, they really walk away with most of their scenes and you get a very sardonic performance by an actor named Ben Carlson playing uh, the fool, who is the mode of the fool who's 
who's the fool who is actually smarter than everyone else. And um, the interpretation of him here is that he's kind of over that. <laughs> um, but uh, it approaches the gender gender dynamics more traditionally than especially that live version I saw. It's it's a farce. It's not a statement. It's not engaging with any of that in the way that that live version was in terms of really investigating um, gender identity and uh, the social dynamics surrounding gender. This is just a funny sort of farce. Uh, it's far better than most of the productions I've seen um, and the productions I haven't seen as well at selling the uh, confusion between Viola in disguise as a man and her brother. Like they actually managed to make her look somewhat like this guy and vice versa. Um, I mean, it's always, they always struggle. It really is a conceit that only works seeing it live on stage because you are that far away from the audience, from the actors. When you are that close and you're seeing, you know, this actress's face and this actor's face, you know, it's very difficult to believe that anyone who, especially people who are like having a, a conversation not two feet away from these people would not realise this. But hey, that's that's the gimme that you've got to give Twelfth Night if you're going to go along with it. I'd really recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Um, lastly, this week, I saw a movie called Red Lights. It's a psychological thriller directed by Rodrigo Cortez. It follows a university professor named Tom, Buck Tom Buckley. He's played by Killian Murphy. He uh, makes a living debunking paranormal phenomena, particularly psychics and faith healers, with uh, his mentor, Professor Margaret Matheson, played by Sigourney Weaver. Um, a celebrity psychic named Simon Silver, played by Robert De Niro, has suddenly come out of retirement after 30 years, uh, and he ha really hasn't been seen in public since his last show, at which his biggest critic um, died suddenly in the middle of the show. Uh, and that sort of cast this pall over it all. But uh, Margaret has a history with Silver, and she tells Buckley to ignore him because he's dangerous. But Buckley can't help himself, and things get um, get complicated from there. This is a very intriguing premise um, that completely gets away from the film. It wants so desperately to tread in the footprints of better movies. I could mention one that it very, very clearly wants to emulate, but that would give away plot details. Uh, the relationship between Tom and Margaret is uh, the best part of the film. They really, really vibe together. It's a very interesting relationship in terms of why they're both doing what they're doing. Um, and there's sort of a maternal feeling as well um, between Margaret and Tom. Uh, they should have lent into it more, quite frankly. I don't think Sigourney Weaver's in nearly enough of this movie. She should be. But, uh, and, and that's a problem because she's spectacular. I mean, Murphy's good, but Weaver walks away with every scene that she's in. She's brilliant. Uh, and the fact that the movie doesn't seem to identify that this is its strongest link and instead cuts back on it in favour of all of this stuff with Silver is to its detriment. The character work is quickly backgrounded. We end up spending a lot of time with Robert De Niro uh, and the plot becomes quite ineffective because the movie never manages to get you to think it's going anywhere other than it is. That's, you know, magic, stage magic is the art of the misdirect. They even say it in this movie multiple times. You're 
uh, so focused on one thing, you don't see what the magician's doing with his other hand. And this movie can't achieve that trick. You know exactly what it's doing at all times. And it never manages to surprise you. Uh, De Niro is just giving a bad performance. Like, it's straight up full stop bad. It's the worst I've seen him in a long, long time. Um, Even worse than my war with Grandpa. Uh, Some of it's not his fault. A lot of it comes from bad writing and direction because uh, this guy, Rodrigo Cortez, just does not have a grip on his movie. Um, the, the narrative gets away. The structure of it is uh, something that he can't control, but the dialogue is frequently laughable, frequently quite clunky. The directing and the editing is jarring and inconsistent, and he is responsible for all of it. He wrote it, he directed it, he edited it. Um, so I've really got to lay it all on his feet. Uh, the third act is highly erratic. It's meant to be serious, but it becomes camp and not fun camp. Um, the attempts to create atmosphere, to create a kind of like psychological, psychedelic kind of vibe, um, what's real, what isn't, they just don't work. Um, and it builds to an ending that is both extremely obvious and yet still feels deeply unsatisfying as a resolution. So I, I can't recommend it. It's not a good film. Um, but that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So we took ourselves to the cinema to clean up one of the movies that we wanted to see before we made our lists. This is The Iron Claw, directed by Sean Durkin. We follow the true story of the Von Erich pro wrestling family. Iron-fisted patriarch Fritz, played by Hulk McClaney. Eldest son, Kevin, played by Zac Efron. Golden Boy David, Harris Dickinson, Olympic hopeful Kerry, played by Jeremy Allen White, and sensitive music lover Mike, played by Stanley Simmons. Beloved by locals, admired by pro wrestling fans across the nation, and hated by heels everywhere, their clean-cut image belies a tragic life of pressure, backstage politics, depression, and substance abuse that threatens to realize the rumors that their family is cursed. This is based on the true story of the Von Erich family and the tragedies that would befall them practically over the span of 12 years. I'll let Harley say his piece about this. Um, so, John and I have been getting into watching pro wrestling for about a year now. Um, we like the theatre of it, we like the, the s- sort of simplicity of it, and it's some of the most uh, well-realised, well-paying live theatre in the planet. It's also fun to see people do flips and shit. So John has been catching me up with a lot of the history of the industry, and the dynamics are a very interesting part of that. We start. I started playing uh, WWE 2K22 because I like making monsters in it and making little weird freaks, and I decided, look, I want to find out. What all of this who means. Who these other people are. I want to understand who these other characters are in this. And obviously pro wrestling has a very sordid history. A lot of people have died from drug addiction, suicide, overdose. People have been murdered. Obviously, in recent times, there's been a lot of shit come out about Vince McMahon. People have known for a long time that he's not. he wasn't a great person, but... It's been more and more in the public sphere that he is, in fact, a monster. Um, But I wanted to get into the history of pro wrestling and 
the story of the Von Erichs is particularly tragic. Yeah, very, very unlucky family. A lot of pressure when you're at the top, especially of the promotion that they were running at that period of time. This is before everything was sort of like gobbled up by uh, WWF, which would eventually become WWE. And that's a part of the plot here, but the plot focuses around the Von Erich brothers. Uh, Zac Efron plays uh, Kevin Von Erich, who is the sole remaining Von Erich uh, child, uh, the children of Fritz Von Erich. And my god, it's a sad story. It is so bloody tragic. The firstborn child would die uh, as a child after suffering from an electric shock and falling into a puddle and drowning. Following that, when all of the children were grown, then it was David, uh, died of a ruptured uh, intestine, possibly due to uh, drug use. Then Kerry would have a tragic uh, motorcycle accident, losing his leg, uh, followed by Mike suffering from a very severe injury in the ring, suffering toxic shock during a routine shoulder surgery, and never being the same again. He would later take his own life. Uh, followed by Chris, who does not appear in this movie because it was deemed unrealistic that one family would suffer so much tragedy. Uh, he ended up shooting himself, followed by Kerry, uh, who had uh, struggled to perform uh, at a high level without his leg. He still performed uh, anyway, um, and eventually shot himself. Yeah, it's just... And all of that happened uh, with the older boys in a span of 10 years. And it's just... In the movie, it feels like it's one after the other. And 10 years is still too short a span for that type of tragedy. All the performers here are fantastic. Zac Efron is remarkable. Uh, his performance here is, I think, the best of his career. And there's a vulnerability to how he plays the character of Kevin. And it's just... Remarkable stuff. He also got into very ripped shape for this, and uh, with the help of actual perform in-ring performers, he and the other actors playing the Von Erichs uh, were trained to do the actual work. Um, so every stunt you see them performing is them. Uh, all the in-ring stuff, every dive, every fall, every bad fall is them, and they're incredible at it. It also details how the industry at that time was a bit of a wild west. Regulations relax, rules relax, and sometimes people suffered injuries in the ring that were unplanned by them, but planned by their opponents, in intent to sort of humiliate them. It is shot incredibly well, it is very precise, but it also uses these warm tones to sort of evoke the 70s, 80s, that sort of thing, uh, leading into the 1990s. And it's ultimately a story about toxic masculinity about how Fritz, as he's portrayed here in this movie, as he's been spoken about by some people who knew him in the industry, the pressure that he put his boys under, the pressure that that industry put those boys under, the fact that um, at that point in time, society said that men can't cry. And so dealing with the loss that they were going through all the time, all that tragedy, all that agony, that those performers put themselves through every day just piles on. And this isn't a sports biopic. Don't get that twisted. No sports occurs in this entire movie except for like one segment where 
Kerry throws a discus. That's the only sports. This is an entertainment. Well, you also in- see them. You also see them playing football. Yeah, but this is a entertainment industry biopic, not a sports one. So the big sort of catharsis at the end of this, the big victory that Kevin has, is not winning a title belt, not even challenging for a title belt. It's being alive, sitting in the backyard with his kids, and it's just so well realized. It is so sad so tragic and it shows the price of performing at the level in which they did um it puts a lot of stuff into perspective about how things were at that time in that industry this is very much set at a point in time where it was the territory system where there was a governing board uh named the nwa and basically agreements had to be made about who was going to end up as the world heavyweight champion at the time. And this is the strain and this is the pressure that is being put on each of the Von Erich children by their father, Fritz, played really excellently by uh, Holt McElhenney, because not only does he look the part, but he embodies that kind of pressure, the Iron Claw, which is the title of the movie, but also was the signature move of the Von Erichs, is a very fitting name because this movie is all about the pressure that is being put on these kids to not only perform well for the audience but in order to please their father. And Zac Zac Efron is at really good in really good form here playing Kevin. You see the dawning horror of the situation on him. You see the grief that he's got over the loss the of his brothers and you see the fact that all of these tragedies could have been fixed mm. way before they occurred. All of these didn't need to happen. And it shows you all of the sort of backstage politics. Performers agreeing on the pace of the match, what moves are going to be happening, talking to each other and communicating. But you're also seeing what the audience is getting shown, which is heels, heroes. You've got all of these bits of the entertainment industry, and all of that is really fascinating. What I really appreciated about this movie is it's filmed really well. The script can be lacking somewhat, but the way it's shot is very clean. This was produced by A24, and it looks it. It has that feeling, it has that look, it has that feeling of oncoming dread. Oh, there are these shots from the distance of a wrestling ring surrounded by inky blackness, which is which has got to be how the performers felt at the time. I really enjoyed this. The score by... Just hold on a second. The score performed by composer Richard Reed Parry is also very evocative, particularly in a segment where an actor is portraying the very famous uh, villain Harley Race. That was very evocative, but the score also shows the tragedy of events. There have been people who have said that this isn't completely accurate to the story. As stated before, an entire brother has been cut from the narrative simply because the overwhelming tragedy would be too much. I personally disagree that that character should have remained in the film and just given the film... 30 minutes more to just 
really elucidate the tragedy of what occurred to this family. But I, I really enjoyed this. It didn't really hit me as hard as it might hit some other people. But for those people, I could imagine them getting really emotional. I read a story about how there was a guy who watched this and just couldn't stop crying. So he and his girlfriend had to leave. And that is kind of evocative of the tone of this movie. And you can see this in cinemas. It's not out to purchase or rent or stream yet. So... Like John said, we've been cleaning up some of the movies going into our best of 2023 list. So we've kind of had to rush the end of this. Uh, mm. So we have had to rent at full price both Napoleon and the next movie we are talking about. Napoleon is directed by Ridley Scott with score by Martin Phipps. It is an epic that details the checkered rise and fall of French Emperor and historically one of the best military minds in history. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, played by Joaquin Phoenix, and his relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his wife and later Empress uh, Josephine, played by Vanessa Kirby. Uh, John, why don't you say a short piece about Napoleon? This was good, but it's too little of a good thing. There are so many moments where it just breezes over huge portions of history in order to just get to things. And in that sense, this film is lacking. Uh, a lot of historians have said their piece about how this movie has deviated from historical record, isn't completely accurate, kind of in a similar way as The Iron Claw. And this movie has a similar issue in the sense that it has condensed so much of what is a very long story into a relatively short time that it's not allowed to breathe. Uh, Ridley, Scott, Be it, Ridley Scott is apparently already prepared a director's cut with an extra hour um, to be well, released that's... sometime this year. Oh, thank God. That's probably <laughs> for the best. He I does a lot of that, that, doesn't he? Like Kingdom, like Kingdom yeah. of Heaven. Like he does a, like. I he... mean, Kingdom of Heaven Blade Runner. had yeah. an insane production. In its own right. He is so. kind of the king of director's cuts that um that actually like really make a difference to how the like, movie I mean, is Blade received. Runner. Yeah. But side it, note, i I really think that we should change director's cuts to do that that Taylor Swift thing. You know, Kingdom of Heaven, Ridley's version. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would enjoy that. Yeah, I do like that. Uh but this this feels like it's, ju it's just not substantial enough. I'm looking for a steak. Ridley Scott has handed me a cheeseburger. I like cheeseburgers, but you promised me a steak. And it feels like that's what we're going to get with an hour added to this movie, which is desperately what it needs. Uh, I was actually kind of disappointed by this. Although, uh, Vanessa Kirby is great. Joaquin Phoenix has... Uh, an almost pathetic slapstickness when he's just in private, but when he's on the battlefield, he is just a monster at this business. He's really good at this. I just found myself... I found this movie lacking, and a lot of historians have even said that, yeah, that they've had major issues with this. Ridley Scott, whose own right, has said that he really doesn't give a shit 
uh, what historians say. I do love Ridley Scott interviews. Like the fact that he is just this now 80 something year old guy who just does not care how and he he's sounds. Still, and he's still making these big movies. Yeah, that's true. And look, all of the great Ridley Scott stuff is here. It, it, it looks beautiful. The places they've filmed at look pitch perfect. Though they filmed stuff in England, this is meant to be obviously France. They picked really great locations. The soundtrack is really interesting in the fact that it it uses needle drops from music of the time. <laughs> and I really appreciate that. The score is also quite interesting. Um, but again, it felt cut off at the knees for me. Um, I'm going to second John's point about it being too short. This is absolutely too short. We should say, for anyone who does not uh, know, this is a three and a half hour long film already. Yeah. 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 And it, yeah, it legitimately saying, doesn't feel it. This is. I cannot believe I'm actually saying that about a movie as long as it already is. It needs more time. And it needs more time because I'm absolutely enjoying what I'm seeing. I think Vanessa Kirby is outstanding. I think Joaquin Phoenix is the perfect Napoleon Bonaparte, sans the fact he's not actually French. I should correct myself, it's a two and a half hour movie, not three and a half hours. Because he wanted to be able to put it in cinemas, because he's got this weird obsession with cutting things down so close to the wire. Hmm. Um, But that's still a pretty long movie, all things considered. But it needs more time. I, I counter John's point that we were given a cheeseburger... No, we were given steak. Just a little bit of it. I want the whole ribeye. And it's shot beautifully. The battle scenes are some of the best I have seen. Oh, you like, get you you see people get absolutely rocked. Like straight up uh the battle of Toulon, beautiful, beautiful stuff. You see Napoleon at the start of that battle terrified, but he's terrified as he's riding into battle as he's climbing up the ladder into the fort, as he's fighting. And and that's Napoleon at the end of the day. Um, Napoleon has been cited as one of the three great, uh, like, tacticians Military of history. Yeah. It's Napoleon, Hannibal Barker, and probably Alexander the Great. Like, that's the top three. And he's the only, and Napoleon's the only one in modern history to be compared to those other two. And... Some of the battle scenes here, especially when he's fighting the Austrian and Prussian armies, uh, that's on full display here. Uh, what is less of a, what is a little bit more of a mystery is what he was like in his private life. We have access to letters that Napoleon wrote to Josephine, letters that Josephine wrote to Napoleon, and really how much of a desperate simp he was. Um... <laughs> No, I'm Legit. not even kidding. I have read, like, translations, and obviously stuff can be missing in translation. Some of the stuff might be sarcasm, uh, yeah, some as of the, the French s- are wont to do. Stuff can be missing in translation, but what is what remains in those letters... What is clear is that he had a desperate need for Josephine, and that is put on display here. And it's done a similar trick to something like The Killer is it makes this really professional person, this really keen-minded guy, and shows him at his most pathetic, which is immediately engaging to me as an audience member. 
And Joaquin Phoenix is second to none at that sort of thing. Uh, this is the second time that Ridley Scott has crowned Joaquin Phoenix as Emperor. Uh, and it's great every time I see it. Um, again, I just wanted more. Like, it's too little. There's too little of it. And hopefully with that extra hour that's coming down the line, uh, my opinion on the movie will rise. Because I really like what we got. Like, factual history be damned, this is a film. And it has to be... Its goal is to be entertaining at the end of the day. It's not trying to be a history lesson. But I needed more battles because they're second to none. And I just needed more of this weird little guy that they've made Napoleon into. <laughs> and... He he carries with him some Boa's Afraid energy. Yeah. J just just in terms of the panic he can get into. Does it look like Ariaster sunk his hooks real deep, and it's mm. hard to shake that off. But no, I had a great time with Napoleon, but it's there's not enough of it. It's too short. And that is really, really holding it back. But I it it, it is actually bizarrely funny. Yes, it and is. I found myself howling with laughter quite a few uh, times. When, like, because Napoleon does forms... it seem like Ridley knows it's funny though? Yes, because that's the thing. Like, I'm never quite sure with him. Because, like, this uh, time, yeah, this yeah. time, yes. Like, House of Gucci was funny, but it seemed like Ridley didn't know it was funny. No, no, this time looks deliberate. Um, this time looks deliberate because you can't look. There's a sequence where Napoleon and his brother are trying to stage a coup. Yeah, that. Okay, so prior to that, Napoleon has formed uh, a sort a of triumvirate with the console system, uh, which was uh, put into play in France post-revolution. This is like a long time post-revolution, but still post-revolution, where things were sort of up in the air and a bit of a mix. Um, and after doing so, Napoleon eventually is eventually is like. Hey, this is not enough. And he decides that uh, he is going to hold a coup, become emperor. Uh, how this is done in the movie is actually really funny, uh, because it shows kind of how his temper gets the better of him, and how that doesn't always work out. Um, but it still works out with him on top at the end of the day. Um, and there's also a sequence where uh, Robespierre is getting confronted about be becoming a tyrant, and he starts just going off at this crowd of politicians assembled in front of him. Someone calls him out for being a tosser. And obvi obviously, I'm uh, paraphrasing in my own vernacular, but... He bolts. He sort of... He bolts. He bolts. Like, like a scared rat, he tries to run out of this building. He ends up getting caught... They've surrounded him. He tries he to fire one to of his pistols at them. It, it misfires. Misses. He tries misfires. to take himself he pulls out, the gun blows to his himself. cheek out. He blows apart his cheek and then gets put to the guillotine. That's French like, history there, for you. There is there's a sense of palpable just physical comedy. It here, sort of goes to show kind of how like how kind of bizarre. How interestingly slapdash uh French revolutionary history can be. Yeah. And but again, it doesn't spend enough yeah. time sitting with moments. Just have to say, nobody revolts like the French. Nobody revolts like the French. They get nasty mm. when they get down, and it's really, really entertaining. They get so crazy, they change what months mean. Um, Thermidor. What the hell does that mean? So but anyway, uh, 
we also rented another film that oh, Lawson I've, actually... I've got that. Oh, you've got that written? Um, Never mind, so I'll let Holly take this. Our final movie that we had to clean up, because we decided to put this on after Napoleon, uh, just for time, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Directed by Francis Lawrence, based on the book by Suzanne Collins, with score by James Newton Howard, returning from the prior uh, Hunger Games films. Also the director of the previous three Hunger Games films, not the first one. Francis Lawrence. Yes. Yep. Yes. Not not James Newton Howard, which is how it no, sounded when no, you no, said no. that. Yep, he did the soundtrack, he didn't do the direction. Experience the story of the Hunger Games. 64 years before Katniss Everdeen volunteered as tribute, and decades before Coriolan Snow became the tyrannical president of Pan Am, the, ball- the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes follows a young Coriolan Snow, played by Tom Blythe, who is the lost hope of his failing lineage, the once-proud Snow family, that has fallen from grace in a post-war capital. With his livelihood threatened, Snow is reluctantly assigned to be a mentor to Lucy Gray Baird, a tribute from the impoverished District 12 played by Rachel Ziegler. But after Lucy Gray's charm captivates the audience of Pan Am, Snow sees an opportunity to shift their fates. The Hunger Games have grown out of fashion. People aren't watching. How better to get people invested and make people care about the tributes? With everything he has worked for hanging in the balance, Snow unites with Lucy Gray to turn the odds in their favor. Battling his instincts for both good and evil, Snow sets out on a race against time to survive and reveal if he will ultimately become a songbird or a snake. Uh, John, will you say your short piece on the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? So we recently have done a retrospective into the entire Hunger Games franchise, and this follows suit. This is brutal, it is dark, it is full of satire. Uh, we get one of the ancestors of Lucky Flickerman, in a really funny Jason Schwartzman, um, we get... Uh, Caesar Flickerman was the guy in the Hunger Games. Uh, yeah. Lucretius Lucky Flickerman is the guy here. Yeah, uh, we have Tom Blythe, who gets more and more Donald Sutherland as the movie goes on, much to my great pleasure. Lucy Graybeard is such a fascinating character, played brilliantly by Rachel Zegler, who also gets to show off her very impressive singing voice in some of the many songs here, including a very killer version of uh, The Hanging Tree, which we would remember as the song that Plutarch changed one of the lyrics to, from Necklace of Rope to Necklace of Hope, with a very self-satisfied smirk on his face. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this was brutal, gnarly, very grim, including a hanging at that uh, very same hanging tree, which, oh boy, the sound design there was absolutely killer. Uh, But we're seeing Coriolanus Snow become the man he was always going to be. We get to see many outs for him to maybe deviate from fate, but you know how the story ends. With him, with a smile on his face, blood trickling out of his nose, cackling at the top of his lungs as the crowd rips him apart. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I loved this. This is... This turns the entire Hunger Games franchise sort of mythological, in a sense. All of the Roman names, all of these call forwards make this movie feel very, very interesting. I love seeing what the capital was like post-war. This is ten, this is ten years 
after the uh capital capital essentially won and solidified their power over the districts. Um and I love seeing the development of the Hunger Games. The Hunger Games existed for ten years by this point. This is Hunger Games number eleven, but it doesn't reach the form it has in the franchise proper without the events of this story and seeing it become the public spectacle, seeing it become this essentially television show that people in the capital and in uh, District 2 watch is fascinating. Uh, All of the the political discussion there, um, I think Snow is a very captivating character here. This is a guy who feels entitled, not only to the life that he wants, but being able to get away with anything. And seeing him fall to his darker urges, becoming the worst version of himself, is compelling and tragic because there are consequences for when people go down paths like this. And And he's sort of being nudged in this direction by an absolutely unhinged Viola Davis. Yes. Uh, Viola Viola Davis is fantastic. Uh, Blythe is wonderful as young Corio. Uh... Lucy Gray Bad is a revelation here, uh, played by Rachel Ziegler. Uh, she is sort of the anti-Katniss. She is equally as well-meaning, but whereas Katniss is more of a hunter than a spokesperson, Lucy Gray Bad is a performer at heart. She's a singer, and the songs that she does sing in this movie are wonderful. I love them. Uh, they give the movie this real heft and weight, and it makes the movie feel more literary. We have chapter headings here. Which you know I love. Uh, which is a touch that John and I always, always adore here. This is a pretty long film. Um, and we get a lot of post-Hunger Games stuff here. In, in fact, most of the movie is outside of the arena. Uh, and the arena itself this time around is bare bones, back to basics, brutality. Um... All of the and little also, bit, all of the little character work that's done for all the contestants, all of the work that uh, Peter Dinklage is doing as uh, Casca Highbottom is fantastic. Hunter Schaefer as Tigress is basically Claire Danes, and it, it's like she's the second coming of Claire Danes. Hmm. It's bizarre. Um, I had a great, great time with this. It is the only reason this feels less bleak than the Hunger Games franchise is because you know that after everything, people will be punished. Snow will be punished for what he does here. And is that a silver lining in a grey sky? You're damn right it is, because nothing in that franchise ends particularly happy. Uh, Suzanne Collins has still got it. Like, I don't know how she comes up with some of these ideas, but The Hanging Tree, especially, is such a brutal touch. And yeah, it's a, it's a great, great show. I had a really great time with this. Okay. I, I understand why you suggested we watch it. Because there were some moments in there that I really dug. Mm. Um, well, I have a pith take uh, okay. to finish us off this week. Uh, technically, I saw it last week, but I forgot to write notes for it, and so I didn't talk about it in last week's podcast. Don't shake your head at me. I'm the only <laughs> one that takes notes most of the time. Um. 
I saw Rent on stage. It's a, a stage musical written by Jonathan Larson. It's loosely based on the Italian opera La Boheme by Luigi Alica and Giuseppe Giacosa, which is itself adapted from the French novel Scenes of Bohemian Life by Henry Merger. It's set in the late 1990s, and it's about a group of bohemian friends struggling with rent, relationships, and AIDS. Um, and it tells the story of a year in their lives from Christmas to Christmas. Um, this was hugely entertaining. It was excellently performed. It's a third version of this I've seen, the other two being the movie and then the pro shot. But you really, like, it worked the best it's ever worked seeing it live. I think that's the way to see it. Um, Rent has never been an all-timer for me when it comes to yep. musicals. Uh, I still, it still isn't, but I do and have always appreciated its impact and the fact that it really was the first musical, the first stage production alongside stuff like Angels in, in America and things like that to really start to talk about these issues and um, for Rent specifically to talk to a group of people group of young people who just weren't seeing themselves reflected anywhere. I think the power of that is significant and, and should be lauded. Um, I've discussed my thoughts regarding the story of Rent before, twice before, so I'm not going to go into it in too much in depth. Suffice to say that uh, I still, broadly speaking, see the same pros and the same cons there. I think that the second half in particular is hugely truncated, given that the first half takes place over a single night. The fact that they fast forward through so much in the second half is an issue for me. Um, it does a good job of creating characters with personality. There's still a time crunch. You still wish you had more time to spend with them and flesh out their stories. But um, Larson creates really distinctive people um, with... Uh, recognizable personalities and and motives uh, in a very short amount of time, and, and that's to his credit. The Bohemian thing really strikes me as naive. It always has done, and I think that it's kind of like the flower power thing in that, um, you know, the further you get from it actually being written, you know, the more naive it seems. Justice for Benny. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But uh, the... Uh, like, like, think about it. This this show is written in the 90s. Um, it premieres in the 90s, just like all the Flower Power stuff. And it's like it's like with the Flower Power and Woodstock and what did Baby Boomers do? They created this. I say this, listeners, while gesturing broadly to the world around me. <laughs> um, and what did the young people depicted in this movie do? Well, they went on to, you know, it's their generation that created Facebook and started a whole bunch of stuff that we don't like anymore. There's, I, there's, and I, I think it's just the the problem is that when you focus on these groups of, you know, fringe, well-meaning people, uh, you really run the risk, as with Flower Power, um, as now with the Bohemian sort of movement of seeing, well, like, that didn't go anywhere, did it? You sort of just, the whole generation collectively went in the opposite direction. And uh, I can't wait to see... What kind of like um, what kind of you know peaceful, well-meaning subset is completely subverted from our own generation and, and from Gen Z and uh, but uh, it's um, it's a, a a very well-written, well-scored musical as well in terms of the songs. Um, the staging of this production was highly effective. The lyrics are hit or miss, though. I think that 
I mean, I really love Tick, Tick, Boom. I think that remains Jonathan Larson's best work. I think that there are some moments in Rent that are actually pretty cringy. Um, it contains the line, for instance, who do you think you are barging in on me and my guitar? Um, and that, that, I love that song, but that's a character who's meant to be a musician. Yeah. Like, meant to be a lyricist. Yeah. <laughs> and, and him coming out with that line is like, Come I mean, on, to man. be fair, uh, compare it to some of the hit songs of today, which is, you know, My Lumps, My Lumps, My Lovely Lady Lumps, or... Uh, what do you mean, today? <laughs> or uh, I Can't like, I can't Feel My Face... That's over 10 years old, Lawson. I Can't Feel My Face When I'm With You, But I Love It, or... To, okay, I'm going to go to bat for the weekend for that one. That's a song about cocaine addiction. <laughs> so, that's... Not necessarily a love song. Just because it's about cocaine doesn't mean you need to make it sound like it was written by someone who was concussed. <laughs> sure. My love is over 10 years old. I think it's more than that. but um, it's Closer a, to 20. It's a, uh, a great cast that they've got here in Rent. Um, especially uh, Noah Mullins, Callista Nelms, and Carl DeVilla. In general, I think it's just a very well done production, and I was happy to see it done live. Um, clearly... It really hit with the audience. The audience that I saw it with really loved it. A lot of people talking as they went out. Definitely a lot of young people who I overheard multiple people talking about how I've seen the movie so many, so many times. And it's like, well, no wonder you are so blown away by this version. Chris Columbus did not do that, did not do a very good job with the movie. But um, but yeah, it clearly still impacts people, still is important to people. Uh, and uh, I respect it. I think it's it's something that everyone should see on stage if they can, as part of a, you know, as part of not just theatre history, not just musical theatre history, but part of you know cultural history as well in terms of the stuff it's talking about, the time that it represents. But anyways, that's me done for the week, and that is us all done for the week. So we don't have a trailer to to play for you because we are going to now move into our favourite films of. 2023 our top 10s we each have prepared a top 10 alongside some honorable mentions uh and a most disappointing film a dishonorable mention if you will and the way we're going to do this is the same way we've done it in years past which is we're going to go in alphabetical order around the skype table so harley jean then myself we're each going to say our number 10s if someone's 10 appears further up on someone's list then we will table it for its highest appearance um and we're just going to keep going around like that until uh, we have finished the list. Um, we will be discussing spoilers. You are on your own, listeners. Um, we will try not to put any spoilers in the first, you know, 10, 20 seconds of us talking about a movie. So you have a chance to skip ahead if you are so interested in, in doing. Um, you will also be able to see a full list of the movies that we're talking about on the in the episode description. Um, I will be timing each of our discussions to try and keep us to five minutes, just so we don't get too out of hand here. Um, and this is mainly directed for Jean rather than anyone else, but we, it is a top five honourable mentions. Not, I have, I cut it down to top five. Okay, because we said top five last it year was... and you came to the table with 12. So. <laughs> but I... <sighs> I cut it down to five honorable mentions, which was, which has been a thing that has been bothering me for the past three days. All right. Well, it, it has been. We appreciate hard your sacrifice. Um, but I 
am pretty sure that's it. I think that's it. Oh, lastly, just to say, this is not meant to be an objective list of the best films of 2023. These are meant to represent our own favorite films of 2023. We are but three people. We only go and see a certain amount of movies. We've got other things to do. I certainly have seen a lot fewer movies this year because of the work that I'm now doing. Um, but Basically, you should be able to see these lists and walk away with a pretty good idea of what our tastes in movies are. Yeah, um, we don't see everything. We're not interested in everything. Mm. Uh, so we and make but, the decisions we've got to make. I do have to say, this year in particular, I feel like a lot of our choices are going to be the right ones. I think we're going to have a much similar... The three of us are going to have a very similar list in terms of the yeah. movies on them. Maybe not in terms of their ranking, but I think there's going to be a lot of crossover. Oh, I do just want to start off before we really get properly into it. What do you guys think of this year in movies overall? Not as good as years past, but I think we had some bangers. I Look, we, we had some incredible movies, some blasters that have absolutely shattered expectations. Obviously, Barbieheimer was... A cross-cultural thing that has spread like wildfire, particularly earlier in the year. This has been a year for the weirdos and the sickos, as far as I'm concerned. See, and... I would say it hasn't been, because I, I think about stuff like X and um, Barbarian and all of the, like, the menu, all the little like weird movies. I just feel like there's been less of them this year, mm. or last year, I suppose. This is also, we should say, the strike year. So a lot of the smaller movies were pulled from release because the actors couldn't promote them. And when you're a small movie, you need that. Um, A lot of the big movies were pulled because of that reason as well. And so a lot of movies just didn't get finished. Yeah. Um, So well, we're we're still definitely going to be seeing the effects of that throughout this year. But but that is also part of it. Like not only talking about the quality of movies from this past year. But also, to talk on the strikes themselves, an incredibly important step in the right direction. Because the strikes were all very necessary in terms of not only, obviously, the actors' strikes, all to do with AI and depictions of actors who have passed using the AI strikes. and CGI. But the writers' strike, more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, just in terms of giving writers their due. Giving writers their well, the money I, I, that I would earned. challenge you there. I would challenge that it's more important because the actors' guilds, like we all focus on, you know, Meryl Streep and Dwayne Johnson and these people who, let's be honest, are not what that guild is for. That that guild is for people who are jobbing actors who have mortgages to pay. That's the people yep. who need the protections. Yeah, and you know, there's some you know horrifying statistic that you know something like. I forget what even it was, but it was the vast majority of members of that guild actually don't make a living year to year solely from acting work. They can't. They yeah. very, very, uh, quite quite a lot of them can't even qualify, meet the threshold for health insurance that that guild provides because they uh, are able to get so little work. And keep in so, mind, that's American healthcare system. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, interesting year. I'm sure books will be written about that whole period um i'll be interested to read them but that's not we're here for what we're here for we're here to uh dissect the uh the movies and yeah i just found myself kind of wondering what exactly the uh how exactly it all 
would have panned out. I I can only comfortably say last year, given last when I look back at last year's performance, I can only comfortably say that my top three this year would have made my list last year. Mm. I think four to seven, four to ten, sorry, could very well have been edged out by movies that were on my top ten last year. Mm. In fact, I think they were, would would have been likely to have been. Um, but uh, why don't we get started? Um, your first cab off the rank, Harley. What is your number ten movie of twenty twenty three? My number ten is Asteroid City. Is that oh, higher on yours, John? Further up in mine. Yeah. Pardon. It's good. All right. Continue, yep, Harley. Excellent. So, what was that? Sorry, John. He said is it was it fine. higher. No, he said it's fine. Oh, okay. No, it's higher on oh. mine. That's what I said. Oh, you sort of glitched out a bit. All right, we'll leave it's that It's higher on mine. Okay. Um. So then we move on to you, John. What is your number 10? My number 10 is Evil Dead Rise. No. No, all good. Go ahead. Nope. Uh, I'm a massive fan of the Evil Dead franchise. I think this is a brilliant little addition. Uh, the fact that it's set in a high-rise apartment building... The Deadites are as nasty as they've ever been. Alyssa Sutherland, who plays the mother here, is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the teen actors and the child actors also equip themselves very well. I just love how bloody this is, and how it doesn't really try to hide its sharper edges. Obviously, I was kind of slightly disappointed by the cheese grater moment. Uh, it wasn't as brutal as I would have liked it to be. What more did you um, want from that it? That was my sufficiently God. brutal. <laughs> what else were I you know. looking for? I but cringed out of my soul, John. Seriously, describe it to me. What did you want to see there? Never mind, never mind. But this movie. <laughs> what did you was want, like, the demon to, like, hell. grab a lemon and squeeze it over <laughs> afterwards? Like, twist the line, perhaps. <laughs> would you put it past them? But. Anyway, I loved this. The little intro sequence, this little short film of people at a cabin, the fact that all of the deadites turn into this fucking husk, this huge mass of bodies uh, called backstage by people the Marauder. Um, the fact that it ends so bloody and that so many of our characters, the two teenagers and the mum, and basically everyone else on that floor of the building get absolutely decimated. And we've only got two people walking out of there alive. Part of me, and this is the reason why it's at number 10, part of me wishes they really pulled the trigger and killed the little girl. Because that feels like an Evil Dead thing. That feels like something the Deadites would do. Hmm. And I believe we haven't... I, I can't speak for Evil Dead, like Ash vs. Evil Dead... But I don't think we've got a child possessed by a deadite yet, which seems like a missed opportunity. My question is, what is the sort of criteria for a deadite possession? They seem to just do it willy-nilly. They just grab you. Yeah. Mm. Um, oh, well. uh, this is on my um, my honorable mentions list. I had a lot of fun with it. Same here. I think it was a fantastic idea to move <laughs> it out of the woods yep. and put it in a new location. I think that they've done the woods many times now and uh especially making it a high rise i think mm. was was a lot of fun it really did create that trapped feeling in a completely different way mm. um the performances I, i'll agree were exceptional i think it was very gritty and dark and bloody and very atmospheric 
I know we differ on this, Sean, but I am so glad that they went the uh, 2013 reboots tone rather than mm, yep. what Raimi ended yep. up doing in the, the like, original trilogy. It melts trilogy. a little bit more of the humor back it, in. It, it melts them together in sort of a husk kind yeah. of form that this is distressingly gruesome, but it also does have humor in it. Yeah, but it isn't like three stooges mm. slip over no. on blood and hear funny sounds in the better. soundtrack go. It yeah. it's it feels a little it feels a little less indulgent, I suppose mm. is the term I'm looking for. Also, it's got my second uh it's got the second best uh uh title card of the year. Mm. Uh second to um a video game Alan Wake two. Yeah. Um the <laughs> The title sequence, the, way the, the title shot from the in Evil behind. Dead Rise is incredible, mm. but Alan Wake 2 hits like a truck, especially if you're a fan of the prior game. So, All right. Great time. That's five minutes, guys. All right. So now we move on to me, and I'm pretty damn sure we're going to be tabling it. Uh, my number 10 is Poor Things. Oh. Yep. All right. Really? That's interesting. That placement is fascinating to me. All right. Harley, where are you at? My number nine, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Anyone else? No. No? Well, that is a damn shame to me. Uh, hate the last 30 seconds. That's why it's number nine. The rest of it is brilliant. I have to say, those last 30 seconds are the reason why it's not on my list and not in my honorable mentions. Look, I get what you're saying, John. I get what you're talking (laughs) to me about earlier today. How you need to look at the whole thing as is. And screw it, I'm not gonna let that last 30 seconds, not gonna let that studio note corrupt the rest of this brilliant nautical horror. Uh, it is my favorite chapter of Dracula brought to screen. And brought to screen properly. It has the terror of being in a very enclosed location that Alien does so well. It's got the fact that Dracula is not a monster like the Xenomorph. He speaks. He thinks. He rations. He hunts. He's a guy. He's a guy. But he's also this brutal bat bastard. And that is a brilliant, brilliant character design. He looks gnarly. And uh, is it Avia Bartet? Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful physicality. He is terrifying as Dracula here. And thank Christ... This is a Dracula who's not some sort of swooning romantic. Thank God. Can you imagine? Because I'm so sick of that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this Dracula trying to woo someone? Mm. Can you imagine what his Tinder profile would be? (laughs) Just him with that big fucked toothy grin. Yeah, I I really did love this movie. I think that it's a great thing that it got made. It was in development for so long, Mm. like literally decades since this was first announced to have been in development. Um, and they really do embrace the scale of it, the production design, the costuming. This is a period looks set great. film. It looks really good. They do they do they are brutal with it. They do yeah. kill characters the and they do boy. the little boy, exactly. And and like in, in the nastiest way too. The thing with the little boy, and we didn't get to say this because of a spoiler, but it is my absolute favourite element of the movie that the boy doesn't die right after uh, he gets bit. The captain is forced to watch him fade away. 
and then they do their sort of like funeral practice on ships. Uh, they wrap him up in a sail, about to throw him overboard, uh, which is the only way to sort of prevent disease uh, and rot, all that sort of stuff. The captain, played beautifully by my onion knight from Game of Thrones, uh, he sees movement within the sails, and the boy's been turned into a goddamn vampire. No, see, that's the thing. He he doesn't see movement under the sails. He sees the wind blowing the sails. No, but that's the thing. He thinks he sees movement. And he's already been so torn apart mentally by this point that he opens the sails up. The boy's eyes flicker open, like completely stark white. He sits up and grabs onto his grandfather and starts to burst into flames. It's like... Before, like, while we see the boy in bed, uh, recovering, I was like, oh, they didn't pull the trigger on that. How disappointing. No, this is much more brutal. Yeah. This is much better. And they do have some moments there, like Dracula mocking a guy, essentially. <laughs> God while help me! Yeah, exactly. Pretty much the one moment he talks, I think. Um, <laughs> like, there are some well, moments it's here that important. are really, really Cultural good. Cultural exchange, he needs to learn English before he lands in London. He already knows English. He was talking to Jonathan Harker. That's true. That's true. Um, but but he needs yeah, to practice. I'm, I'm with John. Like in in some ways, the fact that the fact that it doesn't whiff on the kid makes the fact that they whiff on Wa- Corey mm. Hawkins even worse. Even like I was I was so disappointed when he made it to land, but when yeah. they got to that thing where he sees the he sees half formed Dracula in the tavern, mm. and then Dracula sort of smiles. I was like, great cut. Cut right there. Cut with the knowledge that Dracula is about to kill this guy. You can even I need. have the bit where he like sort of like breezes past him. Yeah, but well, but then to just continue it on and to continue it on in such a brazen sequel hook mm. is it's like, and not only that, it's like <sighs> it's a sequel hook for a movie that was in development hell. Yeah. I'm just Guys. saying, you cut the thirty se- last thirty seconds, and it really is just thirty seconds. Mm. You've got your perfect Dracula movie. I can't imagine that's how the creative team wanted to end it. No, no, I can't imagine not. that that was a choice made by the creative team. Uh, in, the in, cast any, is perfect, I think, as well. Brilliant. In any case, John, we're back to you. What's your number nine? My number nine is Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Oh, oh right. really? Okay. All right. Uh, in that case, we're back to me, and I strongly suspect that we will be tabling this again because I'm, I would bet my entire savings, my entire bank account, that it is higher on both of your lists. It's Bo is Afraid. Yep. Yes. Uh, so now we're back to you then, Harley. What's your number eight? Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. All right. Um, I love this movie. Now, you would agree we live in a post-Game of Thrones world. Well, yes, uh, yes. that is the outcome of linear time, definitely. No, but, <laughs> but what I mean is, like, as a cultural landmark, yeah. It has fundamentally changed how people look at fantasy. Uh, post-Game of Thrones, we always had dark fantasy stuff. We discussed one, Solomon Kane. But now we have almost almost every fantasy series to come out either has some sort of dark, sexy twist or is The Witcher. Which, again, is a dark, sexy twist on, you know, nursery rhymes and fables. This is a honest-to-God, family-friendly, just... Happy to be their fantasy film. And it does that by being Dungeons and Dragons. 
in the most perfect way that it could be, a heist. It is the perfect structure for a beginner's campaign, so perfect, in fact, that almost every beginner's module of D&D is either a heist or a dungeon crawl. And we get both of those things, heist and a dungeon crawl, with my big fat dragon, Thumbachard, who I adore so deeply. Um, As he's oh, running after them, he, he trips, trips over a rolls. chain and rolls. <laughs> the sense of humor in this movie is great. Our cast is magnificent. Uh, Chris Pine is brilliant as our sort of like bard, uh, multi-class rogue. Uh, Justice Smith as our sorcerer, brilliant. Um, I I just do love what Hugh Grant is doing. He's just so slimy, so so slimy. Um, it's a really fun movie. Like that's the thing is yeah. that it's a movie that understands what it's adapting and really does unlock that kind of um, you know friends mucking around kind yeah. of feel. The chemistry it, between the yeah. actors is is great. The way that they work in the sense of humor, the way that they work in like some of the deep cuts of D and D lore mm. in such the a mind, way that the 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 the, the mind devout. The intellect devourers, the little yeah. brain dog things. Yeah, but they keep it so accessible too, um, which is the line to walk. A great year for D&D between that and Baldur's oh, yeah. Gate oh, 3. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I love the additions of some of the more side characters. Uh, Zank, who I forget <laughs> who's Jean played Page. by. He is yeah. the epitome of every paladin I've ever played. He's, he's also the epitome of a character who has been created and has become overpowered so that the DM can get people where they need to go so the story doesn't get wasted. <laughs> he, he tells them <laughs> where to go to get the helm of uh, whatever it's called. He guides them through the dungeon. And- He's the only reason why they get out of there at all. It's uh, uh, Sophia Lillis' as Doric is also really fun. I'm... Um, Really interested to see where she goes in her career from here. And oh, what's her name? Fast and the Furious. Michelle, Michelle Rodriguez. Rodriguez. Michelle Rodriguez is also great here. She she's has got a some fantastic scene with Bradley Cooper. Scenes. Uh, she's got a great scene again. Yeah, with Bradley Halfling Cooper. Bradley Cooper is haunting. Yes, but so so funny. <laughs> this is on my honorable mentions list. I should have said it's, it it's is such honestly a-, a great time. It's really disappointing how it underperformed. Yeah. yeah. And it underperformed pretty profoundly. It made like $200 million on a $150 million budget. I think that the um, the critical reception has boosted its chances of mm. maybe getting a continuation. Apparently, the head of Paramount um, did say that uh, he was open to the idea of doing another one if they could get the budget down. But, you know, it's and- such a pity. Practical locations, practical sets. Um, I also love the practical effects, like that disgusting sick fish. Uh, when they're about to <laughs> the meet Zank, fish. how he. I love Jonathan too. Jonathan, like that entire little sequence in the prison where he's basically giving the backstory of his character. He's like, but pause you just a second there. Um, do you know if Jonathan's going to be here anytime soon? Because I was really hoping that he would hear this next part of the story. I feel like he would really appreciate it. He'd really respond to it. Uh, just the practical costuming, the practical creature design, and... The score by Lorne Balf. I do love the bit in the cemetery with the um, yeah. the dead bodies. That's very, very funny. And classic D&D. 
I, it was a fantastic time. And it All just right. made me feel good. Yeah. We've reached the five-minute mark. So uh, why don't we now move on to who was it now? Jean, you're back at your number eight. Yes. Yep. My number eight is Talk to Me. No. Well, I have not okay, seen well, the movie, so. I was thoroughly impressed by this. This is the Filippo Brothers' first proper feature-length film, and it shows a great maturity from them. But aside from just that, this is also just really well acted. The script is really interesting. The horror elements here are great. This is like a Clive Barker story of people trying to reach something new, trying to find a way to glimpse the other side, but absolutely face-planting when they do, and failing in a tragic way. It- this is also like just beautifully Australian, mm. too. Set in Australia, Miranda Otto's here, uh, Sophie Wilde is incredible here. I just thought the brutality of the spirits here, the horror elements, the fact that we... I actually don't want to spoil this movie no. for when Lawson's going to see this, and you but should. Oh, the yeah, ending it's be on my list. Is, the ending is also tragic. But that's where the Barker touch comes in. It, it That's where the Barker touch comes in of this really haunting ending, and the themes here of trauma and addiction, addiction and substance abuse and being able to move past things and ending up not being able to move past things which leads to the ending and that i love it's got such it's such it's such an amazing showing from the Filippos. yeah uh because we've been watching them on youtube uh we were there for a bunch of their bigger so like ronald mcdonald going batshit videos um and seeing them them develop into legitimately great uh horror filmmakers uh, both with this and one of the projects they had on their YouTube channel. I'm so glad this is getting talk to me as its yeah. sequel. And not just that, but not only mature filmmakers and good horror filmmakers, but thoughtful filmmakers. Mm. Like, they really thought about what this movie's impact was going to be. When they went and they tried to... And they showed this at festivals and things... You can see just the absolute joy in their faces when they are telling their actors, we got picked up by A24. Yeah, A24, our distributors. They they went to their actors and they said, this is going to be the big moment of your career. You are going to shoot to the sky from this point on. And we would go on and see Sophie Wilde in Boy Swallows Universe uh, late last year, early this year. And she has it. She has she's that got quality ex- that makes a star. Yeah. She's got an expressive face. Her, her attention eyes. to detail. The, her eyes are just so full of spirit and energy that this is not going to be the last time we talk about her. No, it's, it's, it is it's a great movie. It just didn't was, make my top ten. I was thoroughly impressed by this, as you can tell. Um, well, now we move on to my next... One which, again, I feel like is going to be one that I'm pushing to uh, wait for you guys because it is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. No? That's interesting. Actually, yeah, no. It's... I've had to be really mercenary this year with my picks. You say that every year, John. (laughs) No, but, like, this year has been a bloodbath, I have to tell you. And the 
My honorable mentions can sort of... It's sort of like... It's a fluid thing, so... I, I reckon you're this not getting is probably... any more than five. You can stop doing. I know. I I know. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. I'm shifting my honorable mentions around right now. All yeah. right, bit sneaky of you, but uh, yes, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy Volume Three uh, is my number uh, eight, and I really, really loved it. I thought it was a fantastic conclusion for these characters' stories. I think that it summed up what. Uh, James Gunn and what the MCU as a broader whole does the best it's the humor it's the emotion it's the epic stakes but at the center of it all it comes back to the characters it comes back to their relationships with each other their personal failings and foibles Um, that is what made it successful and uh, I think it's such a potent goodbye to these characters it's I think it's it's definitely definitely hard to argue with the fact that um a lot of the mcu sub sub franchises have struggled with the dismount from endgame that they've struggled from being at such a high scale to going back to doing uh their own standalone things and i think that the two that have managed it the best have been spider-man no way home and this because it really has come back down on these characters on a personal level on their relationships and it's in both of those instances it has felt like their own sort of personal ending to the stories that they've yeah. been telling again in both instances leaving the door clearly open for more in these in these series yeah but um it it those two have had an an elegance in how it reckoned with the aftermath of that uh that whole era of the mcu um, I really love the performances of everyone here. I love the special effects, which I think are brilliant. I love the color. I love the energy. I love the humor. I adore the use of music. I think ending it with um, the Florence and the Machines song is a great pick because it's sort of it in marking the end of this trilogy, the end of James Gunn's time with the MCU it's the one song that actually comes into the modern day that comes into being a song that was not from the eighties or the seventies or earlier. Um, it sort of marks the end of an era in that sense. And it's sappy. It's a bit yeah. sappy. It's a bit, you know, mushy and uh, it can sometimes tread in some areas where I feel like I got to roll my eyes a little bit. Like when we're seeing all of the, high-pitched voices of the fairy creatures that Rocket is imprisoned with as a as a kid. It really just reminded me of Happy Tree Friends. <laughs> like, it really it really did feel like Gunn was wi- winding up for a joke that he never told, and then I was like, oh, this is just it. Um, it did feel a bit like the Island of Lost Toys. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, overall, it just really, really worked for me, and it, it really connected me connected with me in a way that reminds me of the power of franchise storytelling, the power mm. of sitting with characters and sitting with stories over an extended period of time and the kind of impact that can only come from uh, reaching the end of the road with those characters. It made Rocket Raccoon work for me. Mm. Um, yeah. Because I spoke in the past about how I struggled with that character, but this sort of ties it all together for me. I needed this to make him work. Um, and Lawson, Lawson may have pushed back on the sappy stuff. I didn't. I embraced it. Uh, oh, I, I, like the, I like the sappy stuff. The only part of the sappy stuff I don't like is the 
almost nauseatingly sweet uh, animal experimentees. <laughs> yeah, I those worked for me actually. Um, it looks great, and the high evolutionary. Uh, oh yeah, he's so good. Chakudi Uwuji, so good, so good. One of the best villains they've had recently. Someone says to him, "For God's sake!" and then he says, "Pitch perfectly." There is no God. That's why I stepped in. <laughs> like, he's just a great villain. I think everyone's at the top of the game, gun included. He keeps yeah, it, getting better. It really reminds me of my hope for the DC franchise going forward, because mm. they're in a rough spot. If he can thread the needle like he did here. If he can thread the needle between emotion and character and humor and drama and horror and lightness, then he might just be able to pull off what he's doing. We, If he can do this, like he did here, we've got something special on our yeah. hands. Or Papa Zav- Zaslav might just shelve all of them and we'll never see it because he wants a tax write-off. Yeah, that's, how is, that's Zaslav. How is that man still employed? Like, I don't if know. You, if, if, I worked, if I walked into a new job and immediately set fire to the whole place, I wouldn't still be there two years later. <laughs> no. like, and, and not only that, but specifically... Torched only a couple people's desks. Oh, more than a couple people. Just targeted. He, mm. And and even the ones he didn't set on fire, he kind of like lightly took, took a shit on. Yeah. <laughs> like, um. But uh, all right. So what about you, Harley? What's your number seven? You know me. I'm always going to have at least one superhero movie on my top ten list. It's sort of unavoidable. Across the Spider Verse. Higher. Thought so. Hmm. It's in my honourable mentions. John? Oh, all right. See, this is really interesting because there is a lot of crossover, but like I predicted, we are kind of all over the place in terms of where it's slotting in. This all is right. what happens when you make me make lists. I've had to be very particular about what I'm looking for. I should so... be used to this by now, but I don't like doing this. <laughs> um, How many have we done now? Like, we did... We did 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022. So this would be our sixth. No, no, we didn't do 2018. We weren't doing the podcast when we did 2018. So it'll be our fifth. All right. All right, John, what's your number seven? My number seven is John Wick 4. Have not seen it. So. (laughs) Sorry. It's just too damn long. (laughs) I thought this was great. I didn't care that it was long. I thought it was a blast from beginning to end. The characters, the set design, the stunts are really what you're here for, and they are all incredible. The way that the pace of it goes, the fact that when you think that he can't live through anymore, he just keeps going. The driving stunts, the fights here, it takes everything great from those earlier films and just ramps it up to 11. And Hiroyuki Sonata, please forgive me, but you do not make my list. Not this this movie is... This movie is two movies worth of content in one, and I... It makes me so happy. The Dragon's Fire shotgun scene is brilliant. The score has these moments of any... Ennio Morricone, uh, the ending is really beautiful and tragic. I don't know how they're going to be continuing forward in the future with this franchise. I know that the Continental has had its ups and downs, but this really, really 
hit me, and well, I was so totally just um, they just who's the guy that directs all of them? Um, I'm blanking on his name. Well, he's he, regardless, he's just signed a contract with Lionsgate to be the Kevin Feige of John Wick. Good, um, good. Keep it gonna, all yeah, in house. He's going to oversee the John Wick universe, and he's going to oversee a Highlander universe that they're uh, supposedly Ooh. trying to get off the ground over there. They've got the ballerina prequel coming out um, later this year. Uh, John Wick 5 is in active development. I know enough about how John Wick 4 ends to know that they're going to have some hoops to jump through, but I also know uh, that apparently, yeah. <laughs> apparently there was a few um, a few disagreements in the post-production of John Wick Chapter 4 as to how explicit to make... I think we can just say it, yeah. like, since you know pretty much he, he seems dies. To, yeah, he dies. Um, apparently... Keanu Reeves wanted to. Well, I can't remember his Keanu Reeves. There was a faction that wanted to make it more explicit than it ended up being, more difficult to get out of. Mm. Um, Lionsgate contested that, and they just won. Just let the man rest, um, please. Just well, let him sleep. They just keep making so much money. <laughs> um, like it really is a franchise that has developed organically, and yeah. in a way, like it just—it's not based on any pre-existing property. It kind of came out of nowhere. It make it, that first movie comes out, it's respected. It makes a decent amount of money, but no one would be expecting that it would turn into this massive cultural it's, phenomenon, no, like with you know spin-offs and things. Like it is a—it is a series that has grown with every mm, installment. Yeah, it's—it's it's become almost this like cultural icon too. Like, mm. to the you point get all those where... videos on YouTube of people in video games John Wick style. Mm. Yeah. And Keanu Reeves has... He has a limited range as an actor, for sure. But he's carved out a very beautiful niche for himself as just a guy who throws 110% of effort into it. And the fact that he learns how to do so many of these stunts that he... That he can has still move. Given so much props to stunt performers, I mean, David Leach is the director here, and you can see that there's such a love for stunt performers, choreographers, stunt drivers, that it is a shame that they, as an industry, they continue to get shafted. The shaft by the Academy. There should be a stunt category, I believe just to give these people their flowers uh, because they deserve it. There's only so much that we as uh, you know, a relatively small podcast can really do to get heard. So I really enjoyed John Wick four. Hmm. It, it was a good a time. It was a good time. All right. So then that comes back to me. Uh, and I'd be surprised actually, if this was on either of your two lists, given that it was pretty clear when we talked about it the first time that I connected with it more than you did. It's uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, uh, or as the it used to be known before the cowards at Paramount backed down, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part you see, 1. that ticked me off. Yeah. Because um, I... the next movie is going to be Part 2 of it anyway. Yes. They've because already... of the structure of this film. Yeah, they've already filmed it. But yeah, I Cowards. I really loved this movie. I thought that it was just cinema. It was cinema. It was spectacle yeah. and breadth and scope. It was people on locations uh, with helicopter shots and people doing things for real in camera. Um, Tom Cruise risking his life. 
yes. once more. Tom Cruise running very fast, Tom Cruise jumping onto things, Tom Cruise running even more fast, Tom Cruise jumping off of things. I love Tom how he crashes into the train. The side of a, blasting through the side of the train in one of the best comedy spots of the entire yeah. year. And I like that it is pulling back in some of... It, it does feel like they're kind of working it up as a finale for the yeah. Ethan Hunt character, that you're bringing back um, characters that uh, you haven't seen for a while. Henry Cherney's back. Um, you're getting what I feel is is a very big storyline too with this whole AI thing. They really lucked out with that, didn't they? That, 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 that became super relevant all of a sudden. Um, and... I think that that's some of the most intriguing stuff. It has gone in a very sci-fi direction, which uh, I know that some people haven't responded well to. That is kind of my thing, though. Is, I think is, it's necessary. Like, it was always going to go this way. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a story that I'm very intrigued to see the ending of. I will say I don't love that they killed off uh, Vanessa Kirby. That said, I'm not convinced that that's a permanent thing. <laughs> uh, don't Don't you mean... No, that wasn't Vanessa Kirby. Oh, that who was... is it? Vanessa Kirby's like the White Queen or whatever. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. What's her name? Ah, oh, I forget her name. So let me have a look. Because I was thinking, we watched uh, some scenes around the end of it, and I'm like, Vanessa Kirby doesn't die. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca Ferguson, that's it. Uh, Rebecca yeah, yeah, Ferguson. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't think she's gone forever, though. I think she'll probably be back. Because um, nobody dies in these bloody things. But I think that the uh, the... AI too, the machine is mm. a really interesting character, and mm. I think Asai Morales is fascinating as the sort of henchman. Um, the way that they, he they try to sell us on the fact that he's been he, that he's one of uh, Ethan's old uh, enemies or companions from when he was younger. Yeah, well, they they do try and convince us that Tom Cruise was like a leather coat wearing tough before he, it's like, <laughs> he became oh, it's like come on yeah, pull no, the other one it's tom cruise um that man went to like private schools and uh <laughs> you know never got his hands dirty in his life um wasn't he in the outsiders oh uh, i'm not sure i'd have to go and check but uh yeah it's it's a film that i think kind of had a bad bit of bad luck to it because he it was released it was going to be released during covid and then covid happened and delayed everything and then when it finally comes out it, it comes out in the this completely unpredictable uh maelstrom of barbenheimer and it completely i mean that's why they changed the name is it didn't perform as well as they had hoped that it would so now they can't to, go up against the juggernaut yeah. so now they're trying to trick all of the people who didn't see it that they can still go and see this next one because it doesn't have part 2 but so they can't. I know. They, yeah, they're not going to know that until I've already paid for the theatre ticket, though. So, yeah, I look forward to seeing it resolved. It has been pushed back again. It was going to come out this year. It was. It is now set to come out in uh, 2025. That was a strike-induced yeah. um, delay. But uh, I really hope to see uh, this pulled off in the end. Um, I really hope that it works i know that tom cruise has said that he's not going anywhere that he wants to be doing this um as you know i i would like it if he moved into more of a like how alec baldwin was in yeah. um five and six 
but he's still got his hands dirty every now and again. You could still give him like one action scene per movie, but keep him around. But like Tom, but it's the best action scene in the entire film. Yeah. At, like, some, come on. at some point, he's going to be out. He's not going to be able to run like he does. I mean, Tom Cruise, the man is turning sixty-two this year. Yeah. I mean, we just need to face the facts that if if common sense doesn't stop him sooner or later, nature will. <laughs> so <laughs> it will step in. Yeah. It will step in. All right. Why don't we now loop back around to you, Harley? What is your number six? Uh, something I am confident is on neither of your lists. A haunting in Venice. Um, no, 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 didn't think so. Um, I mean, I we're we're gonna jump in. I think if one of us is on there, I don't think we're gonna sit in silence for five to ten seconds. <laughs> John has done so in the past. Um, haunting in Venice. I adored this. You guys know me. I am perhaps the biggest fan of these new Poirot movies. I absolutely adored um both. Uh, Murder on the Orient Express, I thought that uh, Death on the Nile was underrated. It remains to be. Uh, I walked out of Death on the Nile pissed off and sad. It upset me for a week. What happened I, it's, to Boog? I still, I find it astonishing. And, you know, fair due to you, whatever works. But, like, the fact that th- that random guy's death affected you so badly, like... Poirot needs a friend! Yeah, but you'd think like that they, they killed off Piglet or something <laughs> like. Like I, don't know, I just I didn't. For the, for that I big just and felt like, the poo. Yeah. Um, and what I adore about this movie is that it feels haunting. That all of the pain that Poirot has gone through just rests upon his shoulders. It it is something that follows him wherever he goes, not just. What happened in the previous two movies? What he experienced in war? All the shit he's seen over his career as a as a detective. Like he sees people at their worst, and he can't carry that weight forever, and it's been weighing him down. And I love me a closed room mystery. This one is, to be honest, like we said in our uh, when we talked about this earlier, it's an obvious uh turnout. Obviously, the mother did it. It's Munch- Munchausen by proxy, I believe the condition is. Um, but well, no, she was trying to keep the daughter from running off and leaving her. Yeah, for running away also like there's a sympathy element to it as well. Yeah. Um, and all of that being said, I think that the closed room is fantastic. The location is gorgeous. Uh, the cast is really, really strong, and it's also a much more intimate story. It's it's not. A fancy boat on the Nile. It's not this gorgeous train. It is this one place, one night. We gotta get this mystery solved. And it's a house that's falling apart because it's in Venice, which has very unstable foundations at the best of times. But this is set during a storm. Uh, portions of the house have flooded. You really are seeing the house as indicative of people's mental state. And that there are skeletons in the closet, flooding in the basement, that this is a haunted house. Yeah. Um, and what works for me here is Kenneth Branagh, not just as Poirot, but as the director. This is a much more intimate project, and he has a much lower budget than the prior two outings as well. And so he's had to resort to being a little more clever in how he does things, how he stages things. There were the bits down in 
uh, the corridors ne- next to the little pier they've got underneath the house, where you see a lot of handheld camera and like what look like GoPro, what looks like GoPro footage. I think that's really cool. The movie looks fantastic. It's the best looking of these movies so far, and I a movie like this just belongs on my list. Um, the previous two have, and I wouldn't be surprised if any future projects like this end up on future lists uh, if Brana intends to make more. It will be interesting to see if we get another one because it has been uh, diminishing returns. Although I will say that uh, th- this one actually, I think, made more of a profit than uh, than Death on the Nile did. But Death on the mm-hmm. Nile also did come out um, Pandemic. during a, a COVID wave. But, uh, but yeah, this made twice its money at the... Um, the theater although the first two got 4k releases disney did not do a 4k release of yeah. this one they just did a blu-ray so um, who knows michelle yo is fantastic jimmy dornan is great uh i like tina fey here as well i i just love how this was a story about how poirot got his groove back how he was able to find a measure of peace within himself and not all horror stories have to have a terrible ending not all horror stories involve ghosts, but they're the ghosts that we carry with us. All right, Jean, you're number six. My number six is Barbie. Uh, higher on mine. Um, did you say higher, Harley? Higher. In that case, we're going to move straight on to you because mine is actually number six as well now that I double-check. <laughs> um, so you, we're back to you at number five. Uh, Saltburn. Higher. Higher. Thoughts, sir. All right. Now then, Sean, we're back to you again. Your number five. Uh, Oppenheimer. Higher. Higher. Higher? Yep. Figured. Lawson. All right. So my number five is a movie that we can actually talk about because it's a movie neither of you have seen. It's The Holdovers. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, a movie that was actually, I think, a really special movie. It's a real gem. Um, It's a movie that is quite traditional in its makeup. Uh, it's just about you know this cantankerous boarding school teacher who is forced to look after this um, sort of wild and untamed kid over the Christmas break. Um, but in its traditionalism, in its classicism, its references to old 70s and 80s movies, um, it finds what I find to be a really vital connection to present day concerns, to the sort of... The, the, the trauma of this kid's generation in the movie of being, you know, being born into a world that seems like it's lighting itself on fire. There's Vietnam, there's Watergate, there's all this crazy shit going on. Well, that pays, that's, there's a lot to connect to the present day out of that. But then there's also the stuff that Paul Giamatti is going through as this sort of teacher, this guy who's... Life has not turned out the way he wanted it to turn out, and the, you know this the sort of thwarted ambition of the man, and it all combines into what is a really delicate, really elegant, really graceful character portrait of these two people in a way that um, is extremely affecting. It's brilliantly performed. Giamatti and uh, Devine Joyce Randolph are both nominated at the Oscars. Um, Randolph is pretty much just assumed by everyone to be walking away with it for Best Supporting Actress. Giamatti is in hot pursuit of Killian Murphy for uh, lead actor. Um, 
But Dominic Senna also, who plays this kid, this is his first role, his first credit, um, and he is extraordinary. He is, I said in the re- in, in my just regular review of it, he is a guy that I think that we're going to be seeing for decades. He is a guy who we're going to be seeing in his 30s and his 40s and his 50s because he is a guy who walks onto a screen and just has that kind of charisma, that um, magnetism. It, in the end ended up being a movie that stayed with me a lot that I thought about a lot and um I I think that it's going to be remembered as ultimately a really a really smart really well made really well performed um but also really meaningful movie from uh 2023 um so that brings us back to you then Harley what is your number 4 let's try this one more time poor things nope Higher. Higher. Excellent. All right, John. My number four is Asteroid City. It's not on my list. It's in my honorable mentions. Yeah. Uh, And it was your number 10, wasn't it, Harley? Uh, Yes. I'm a massive Wes Anderson fan. I love practically every movie of his that I've seen. And this is no slouch either. Uh, The story about making stories and the impact those stories not only have on the audience, but on the performers performing them. This is very much a story about grief and the way that grief can be... Grief and pain can be given to your performers at the same time. I thought the cast here was incredible. He keeps collecting actors in this really fun way. Uh, Collecting them like Pokemon, almost. He's got Tom Hanks here for the first time, and it's fantastic because it's like he was born or to be in West don't you, don't you even, <laughs> god damn it i saw it in your uh, i saw it in your goddamn eyes Lawson. <laughs> he's also collecting some younger actors sophia lillis who we spoke about uh in terms of dungeons and dragons but also maya hawk is here and she's great here as well and a lot of the returning cast are fantastic i believe brian cranston You've got Edward Norton, Jason, Jason Schwartzman. Schwartzman, Adrian Brody, who obviously was in a Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, God, what's his name? a Rupert Friend as well uh, is one of the new ones that he would continue to uh, work with on some of his short films that hmm. were released late last year. Those which, are really good. I would definitely Those are really them. good, particularly the, Roald rat, Dahl, the rat catcher. They're these Roald Dahl adaptations. They are outstanding. Yeah, and in doing so, he in doing so with those, he collects Dev Patel and Benedict Cumberbatch, which it's like he's reaching his tendrils into all of these areas. But Asteroid City I thought was really affecting. The sets were great. I love the alien. Here, I love the look he gives to the people when he comes down to grab the meteor. The way that he sort of is incredibly sort of self-conscious, holds it up for the photo that's being taken of him, and then quickly leaves. And then when he comes back to put it back um, down. We had quite an interesting discussion um, after we left that movie, because we watched this one with you in the cinemas. Mm. And I also really adored um, Jeffrey Wright's character, there's a moment where he gets to absolutely light the microphone on fire with this just pure stream of consciousness Wes Anderson patter that he does, and it's just great. Um, 
I didn't quite attach to it when we left the cinema. Uh, I, I found a bit of difficulty reconciling its disparate elements. Both the Asteroid City pl play within a play, essentially, and the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. And over time, letting it sit with me, re-watching sequences, I get it now. I get it now. That stuff with um, Schwartzman not playing Orgy, but playing the actor playing Orgy, uh, becomes that much more affecting. Um, Rewatching scenes, it's I think it's really, really well done. I think it's his best movie since The Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, mm. And I loved French Dispatch. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really well made. It really has such an enviable cast. It's very well written. I love the kind of, like, Roswell... Area 51, like, 50s set backdrop also. Um, I think that's yeah. a lot of fun. And I think that definitely some of the weirder, wackier moments, like the bit where the alien turns up is just, like, top-tier Wes Anderson, like, coming in from left field with something you just didn't see coming. He looks and... so awkward. Yeah. It's as if he doesn't want to spook anyone. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I do love how... Just before we get a really fun cameo from Margot Robbie, T Tiff Goldblum, who is ostensibly playing the alien, uh, is sitting backstage talking to one of the stagehands saying, you know, I was playing the alien as sort of more of a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just these little funny touches, it, which it really I really appreciate. It really did kick that, uh, that theatre kid itch in me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and... On retrospect, I loved it qu quite a lot. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're back to you then, Harley. No, we're back to me. Sorry. Um, my number four is a movie we can talk about. John's already indicated it's not on his list. It was Harley's number seven. It is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It's in my honorable mentions, though. Um, I think that this is just such a, like, I love this as a follow-up. I love the surprise of these Spider-Verse movies. Uh, I think that Sony was surprised. We talked about this last week. That they're spending so all their F time and effort on getting, uh, you know, Venom and Morbius and Madam Web off the ground that Lord and Miller just managed to make this really fascinating, subversive uh animated film that is so creative and so complex and layered. Um and the and visual really, style of this new one just, like, beats anything in the first. Yeah. And it's really working in what I think I can comfortably call a, a more Eastern philosophy of animation in the sense that it doesn't have to aim at the lowest common denominator. It doesn't have to assume that this is just for children and not only that, but children who need need everything explained to them too. It's It's allowing itself to talk about darker stuff to talk about some really complicated ideas and just in terms of plot structure and mechanics um it is a movie that's aimed at everybody and it it benefits from that it's also another one of uh i think three movies um this year that were originally supposed to uh be a part one no, and part two be a part one and part two yeah um fast x this and like i don't know if fast x was supposed to have part one attached to it at any point but um feels yeah, it, like it did it it's like the it does feel like the uh the year of the two-parter the openings of two-parters i suppose yeah. it, it it is two-parter movies part two yeah <laughs> so to speak um but 
also another one where the uh, release of the second one has been pushed back because of the strikes. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I Okay, so they're absolutely going to have cameos from at least one of the live-action Spider-Man in they, that film. Yeah, they have right? to at this point. I think it has to be Holland. Yeah. Because that makes most sense to me, because you see uh, Tobey Maguire and Uncle Ben in that little fucked-up museum that Miguel has. You also see a clip of uh, Andrew Garfield crying over Uncle Ben. So I think, in terms of live-action representation, I think it needs to be got. Uh, sorry, Holland. Uh, Holland. Yeah, I, I would. The one I would be most, the one I think is least likely is Maguire. Mm, um, yeah. but what I if think they get Reeve Carney from Turn Off the Dark? <laughs> I wouldn't put it past that them. Would be I would not put it past them. Canonize like, would, it quick. If anyone I mean, is going to do they, it, it's going to be Lord and Miller. Like, yeah. yeah, they. I mean, they they showed the melted Spider-Man popsicle. Spider-Man. Spider-Man is in there. They did the pointing meme. They did the best the pointing of the meme, pointing meme times a billion. <laughs> like if Reeve Carney is just if he if his only cameo is like in a sea of Spider Men, um, and he just like the second he uses the web, he falls to the ground and injures himself. <laughs> like <laughs> that that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. Um, he starts to sing "Rise Above," but we don't have the we don't have the uh rights to it, so he just eats shit. <laughs> Um, I, I this is on my honorable mentions because not only is the art brilliant, the story uh, brilliant, the directions the characters are taken, the fact that Miguel O'Hara has more in common with Inheritors than he does with Spider Man, and the score by Daniel Pemberton is also really incredible. The use of turntabling, the use of putting the score through filters and playing the orchestra through amplifiers, the use of rock instruments, electronic elements, the growth of the sound design paired with the score, the fact that there's goose sounds that have been scratched into certain tracks, the the opera slash hip-hop slash techno slash rock elements when Vulture shows up. I think it's just an incredible piece of art in its own right. But I know that the movie was lacking uh, for you in one specific uh, criteria. Not enough Spider-Ham. Yes, we could have done with more Spider-Ham. I'm holding out hope for the third one. Um, He's part of uh, Gwen's little team. Yeah, not enough though. Like, you don't really get any of them. You don't No, but it's, it's like, it's a good and... it's a good indication it's a, that it's we'll a get good more omen. of them. Yeah, it's a good omen. Um, what, um, what... You have you have a love of Spider-Ham that I find a little strange, because I I felt he was kind of grating a little bit. I was much more on Spider-Man Noir's Level. wavelength. Um, yeah. It's a gorgeous-looking movie. It sounds great. All right. Um, so we're back to you then, Harley. What is your number three? Barbie. Uh, not, not higher so, for you guys? No? no, it was John's number. It was John and my both. It was our number six. All right. Barbie was a phenomenon, right? Even outside of the Barbenheimer thing, you know, that that rose both ships. But I don't think people were prepared for this one. I, I honestly don't think... Like, we knew that uh, Gerwig is capable of some brilliant stuff. 
as a director. We know that. We've seen that. But I don't think anybody was actually ready for Barbie has an existential crisis and turns human. I don't think people were prepared for that. And I thought that this was just a very, very moving film. Um, the performances from all of the actors involved, I really like what Ryan Gosling is doing. He goes to this really dumb place. But his decisions are all very well considered as a performer. I think he almost what... has to change his brain chemistry to be <laughs> that dumb. Yeah, and I love the music. The music is so good. I'm Just Ken is a wonderful sequence and so, so dumb. Uh, but the part that hits me, the part that killed me in the cinemas, the part that made me tear up in a crowd uh, was when What I Was Made For started in the movie, when she met uh, Ruth Handler. And that just that just killed me. Lawson? Um, it's an incredibly smart film. It's mm. very... Uh, subversive. It's very clever. It's very sly in the way it approaches what it's doing. It it sneaks in some commentary. Well, it doesn't really sneak it in, but I suppose it sneak it snuck it in in the sense that no one really knew that that's what this movie was going to be until they were sitting in the theater watching it. Um, just the the fact that Ken is radicalized by men's rights activists and like comes and back. It's so quick. It's so quick. Um, and he believes that basically all man stuff is leather, watching trucks on he TV. He thought patriarchy was some horses. sort of horse to begin with. Uh, I mean, that's the thing, is that this was an, a, an answer to... A, this was always going to be a question that the movie was going to have to answer, regardless of what take it took, which was... So, Barbie, right? You know, blonde hair, long legs, high mm. heels, pink all the time. Is that the greatest representation for women and girls in the 21st century. Mm. And Greta Gerwig has, I think, threaded through a minefield in terms of the very complicated history and culture surrounding Barbie and feminism and women's uh, rights and has both acknowledged the problems with it, but also acknowledging the value of it and the reclaiming of it and you know that just because there are these problems in the past does not mean that femininity in and of itself needs to be uh you know mm. destroyed to create something you know you know you don't need to raise it to the ground mm. um it's it's walking a very interesting fine line that I'm aware as I'm speaking I'm not putting it into the most well, really it's about self-determinism Exactly. Like it, you get to decide what. Yeah, you can play with Barbies, or you, you can do whatever you want. And if that's playing with Barbies, you know, good for you. If that's wearing makeup, good for you. If it's not wearing makeup, good for you. Like it, but it also is very aware of the fact that you know that Barbie was being used to push a stereotype of women that probably did a lot of damage over the course of the decades, and mm. uh, it's just contending with that stuff in such a with such a light touch and a and a careful hand, but at the same time being so funny, oh, so gosh. well acted, so that colorful. Whole I mean, Michael Sarah whole... as Alan mm. is fantastic as well. He's he's a little smarter than Ken, but not by much. I do like how he says, "Oh, Alan's escape all the time." Have you ever heard of In Sync? Like, I I also love the <coughs> the whole opening sequence 
of Barbie's day, and then the day after that, everything goes wrong, and the song is basically screaming, I'm sad I want to die. (laughs) (laughs) But I also love the real world stuff. I just want to continue just a bit. I love the real world stuff, the fact that Mattel has been personified as this almost 1984 dystopia, (laughs) that it's almost like something out of Brazil. And the absolutely psychotic performance of Will Ferrell. You have Will Ferrell say these very words. We have the ghost of Ruth Hanlon in our building. We've got a whole room for her. And that is just wild. Mattel got a lot of goodwill from people for allowing themselves to be made fun of. Um, all right, then. So now we're at you, John. What is your number three? So these top three can jump around depending on how I feel on a day. But as of today, my number three is Saltburn. Higher. Higher, yeah. Um, so. so now we move on to my number three, and it is a movie that I am fairly confident is not going to appear on either of your lists, especially if it's not this far, if it's not appeared so far, because it's a movie that I know I connected with a lot more than you two did. It is Leave the World Behind. Um, this is a movie that I thought was kind of made for me in a lot of ways. It's a mystery box movie. There's a lot of weird shit going on. There's a lot of interesting, you know, uh, mystery elements and, and odd little things that just, A, create great visuals and great set pieces, um, but also build up into this sort of tapestry of dysfunction and this sort of approaching apocalyptic event whatever has happened um that these people sheltering in this mansion in the woods whatever's happened back at the city that's turned out the power everywhere that's shut off communications to everything and it builds up and builds up and it's working for me on that very blockbuster popcorn level but then it really works for me also as someone who is uh let me put it bluntly terrified about the state of the world (laughs) um as someone who really thinks that uh, the last 10 years of history has been pretty profoundly awful uh, and that the next 10 years... I want to stop years, living in interesting times, please. Yeah, and that the next 10 years ain't looking much better. Um, that all that it's talking about in terms of people turning on each other, in terms of division in society, in terms of whatever the hell America's doing specifically, <laughs> is, you know, so so impactful. And um, it really, really works for me. The stuff, the way they talk about race is, I think, handled extremely well. Um, the way that they contextualize even the characters who, on the face of it, aren't the most sympathetic, they become more sympathetic as the movie goes on. They find dimension. Um, the fact that this is produced by Barack Obama mm. is doubly terrifying. <laughs> that this is sort of... Ha- it, this version of America is, you know, he sees something in that mm. is very concerning, um, especially going into an election year over there. Uh, but uh, I, I think that it, it just, it just works. It works as mm. an examination of uh, a culture and a society that is becoming its own worst enemy. And yeah. um, in that sense, I think it's great. Plus you get just great set pieces too, like that, set pieces where they're driving against all of the uh, the Teslas. <laughs> yeah. um, 
like all of that stuff. I, I mean, I think that we are due for a huge big budget cyber attack movie at some point. Get Roland Emmerich to make something that really <laughs> embraces that in the full like like maximum overdrive, mm. <laughs> essentially. But yeah, I do like the scene with uh, Kevin Bacon. How he's this prepper. He's re- been ready for this kind of thing for years, and he is just unwilling to give any quarter. Um, I do like the movie. I do. I might have sounded a little colder on it than I intended when we were discussing it after John and I had watched it, but I think I'm just kind of burnt out on that type of movie, and it's a little bit of diminishing returns, I think. Uh, we brought up stuff like, uh, Us, uh, and Knock at the Cabin. Knock at the Cabin, but I, I found it myself is a very, very at the strong cabin movie more. on its own account as well. See, I... I would say that it's not that much. I I can see where you're coming from in terms of it's like people in a in it an just environment has a vibe. that are trapped. It has kind of a vibe, yes. It has a vibe. But I think that this is much more political and much mm, more about yeah. the current state of the world. Directly I, so, yeah. yeah. Um, it's uh, it's a movie that I think will be very interesting to watch in ten, twenty years and see how it sort of feels in retrospect, whether it really does evoke the feeling of this period. Um, definitely also, like, that I'm really looking forward to it, but at the same time I'm kind of dreading it, the Alex Garland Civil War. Like, that oh, looks yeah. so, so good, <laughs> but so, so grim and dark, and I mm. yeah, I do wonder whether I'll be sitting here this time next year talking about it being on my list. But, um, we'll see. We will see. Uh, so, why don't we now move on to your number two, Harley? This year, well, this past year, uh, we saw a lot of great movies, but not a lot of those movies were us paying to see someone's therapy take place. <laughs> um, Bo is Afraid is my second favourite movie of 2023. And it's higher for you, John, is that oh correct? Oh my god, yep. Okay. Yep. Alright, in that case, we move on to you, John, for your number two. My number two is Poor Things, and it's lower on you guys' ones, so I'll just say, this came in at the end of the year, and it came in swinging. It has such an energy to it, the aesthetics of it are gorgeous, the acting is just spectacular across the board. I love seeing my weird little guys, and that's what Ruffalo is playing here, just this weirdo. And it's an energy that I haven't seen from him in a very long time, if at all. And I just love seeing him working as a capital A, God's Honest actor again. I also love Emma Stone here. Bella Baxter is such a fascinating character in the sense that she can mean something to a lot of different people. There are readings of this movie that I can see of it being a feminist piece of a uh, coming-of-age story about one someone finding their sexuality. A story of developing consciousness. A story of developing consciousness in, a t- in terms of a more AI, not AI the thing, but AI the movie kind of thing. But what I was seeing was this person who has issues with social situations and issues with understanding what people are saying and understanding what people are saying underneath the words that they're saying understanding their subtext i'm i have so much love for the character of bella baxter because i felt incredibly seen by the performance that i was picking up 
a lot of stuff about someone being on the spectrum, about seeing a situation, understanding that it's the case, but not understanding why it's the case. And I just really enjoyed that. This movie scratched an itch in the back of my brain, which is like, hey, what if there was an R-rated coming-of-age story, but looked like it was set in the world of a series of unfortunate events, not the movie, but the TV show. Uh, I also love the side characters. Obviously, uh, Willem Dafoe is always fantastic. Uh, I've loved him since he was the Green Goblin. I've loved him since he was uh, asking me, asking people to write things in the Death Note. Since when he was asking, <laughs> pe- when he was asking for a sim- uh, just just a little last taste of apple cider and then being fed sewer water. Well, personally, all the way I, to I him was asking, co- I was... "You like me lobster, don't That's you?" That's what I was about to say. But this is. Willem Dafoe in top form, as he always is. Uh, Catherine Hunter shows up, which I just love that. I I want her to be in more big-budget weird movies, because she always has such an energy to her. I thought the designs of stuff here were great. The designs of all of these little fucked-up Isle of Dr. Moreau animals that Godwin has made. I just... I felt this movie in my soul. I really, really loved this. Um, and I'm going to be looking at some more uh, Yorgos Lanthimos movies because he has such an interesting idea for what movies can be. I think that this was such a great film. It's almost like what would happen if you changed two elements of the Frankenstein story. Uh, Frankenstein sticks around and doesn't faint like a bitch. And what happens if Frankenstein's creature is a daughter as opposed to a son? And the feminist reading of the movie is inescapable. It is central to, I think, understanding the piece itself. That's the poor things of it, isn't it? It's Bella Baxter not only discovering what it is to be human, but what it is to be a woman. And how she can define that for herself and doesn't have to rely on morons uh like Ruffalo's character here, like she does, like how she doesn't have to be cynical, uh, how she can still retain a sense of compassion. And I gotta admit, I do like the fact that uh, her original body's um, bastard husband gets a goat brain. Um, yeah, that's a great ending. <laughs> it's so brilliantly performed too. Like mm, Emma yeah. Stone really is such a powerhouse in this movie. Really does reinforce that she is one of the great young actresses working today. Um, I think one of the greatest of the generation. It's a a spectacularly produced and designed film also. It looks so good. Yeah. Um, It was my number 10, um, but it's got such colour and verve to it. Uh, And Mark Ruffalo, my God, I mean, the man... (laughs) He he does! He gets so pathetic. little scene where she's already sent him tried to send him back to England, but she just, she's working in the brothel, she hears, ah, coming from outside yeah. of her window, and he's basically doing a, uh, streetcar named, streetcar named Desire, but is unable to get any words out. He's tearing his and hair out. <laughs> he's such I a goddamn loser. I love seeing him in the insane asylum, when he's like, you know, she does things to people. She's a demon. <laughs> she's insane. 
Why am I the insane one? She ruins people. God, <laughs> such a good performance. All right, well, now we move on to my number two, and it's a, a movie that's already appeared on both of your lists. Uh, it's Saltburn. This yep. is a movie that I adore. It's a movie that I walked in expecting to like, uh, but it really did blow me away. In some senses, it really does remind me of um, something like Babylon or mm. The Menu in that sense from last year, which is a movie that at the time I saw it, I had not heard a lot of people talking about either of those movies, but they came in and they just were for me. They connected directly to me. Um, and this is that for this year. It's such a uh, just it's thrilling. It's funny. It's incredibly dark and twisted. It's got a great, you know, cast and sense of humor. Emerald Fennell. I think this movie cements her as someone who I'm never going to miss a movie of hers between this yeah. and Promising Young Woman, um, which appeared on my list a few years ago. This is, I think it's fair to say, a messier movie than Promising Young Woman, but I also like it more. Um, it's just so entertaining. It's drawing on everything from old BBC dramas to Brideshead Revisited to the talented Mr. Ripley uh, to create this fascinating examination of class of, uh, you know, capitalism, of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in the most twisted sense of the term. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of people, it frustrates me that a lot of people have used the fact that Emerald Fennell comes from a very wealthy family to tr kind of disqualify this movie in some way. They're not really able to articulate it any more than that, from what I can see. It's just, she's rich, so she's bad. Um which is but I, I think about her coming laziest, from a wealthy family. The laziest possible critique. Mm. Like, you're really just exposing yourself as someone who has absolutely nothing else driving them other than these sort of, like, class distinctions, which in some ways makes you, you know, just like the uh, the awful rich people in this movie that Emerald Fennell spends so much time mocking. Mm. Yeah, she spends so much time mocking them, so you get the feeling that she's known people like this. That she's been around them. She comes from the inside. So she has a perfect vantage point to see the disquieting nature of these people. The fact that when that, oh, the cousin, Farley. the yeah. Farley, he's only in, but only in as far as the family will allow. In as far as he behaves himself. In as far as he behaves, because the moment he misbehaves, they're like, look, we let you come into our home, and this is your home, do not get it twisted, but we have rules that you must follow. The fact that it has almost a shining element, too. The fact that the butler looks like he's been there for fucking ever. He's so good, by the way. Oh, like, yeah. That guy just so steals good. so many scenes. Like, the supporting he's cast of this movie, there. Carrie Mulligan as, as Helena Bonham Carter, um, yeah. Richard E. Grant, who gets he gets two dynamite scenes, but he spends the yep. rest of the time fussing around in the background. He always has like a, this bit of business that he's doing in every <laughs> scene that just draws your attention to him. It's so entertaining. I just love the. I mean, I just love the eat your breakfast, Farley. <laughs> no, no, it's like eat the pie, eat the bloody pie, eat the pie, eat it. Um, I think one of the reasons also that this has gotten a bit of a backlash, and this might might just be, be me being cynical and a little. Um, 
unkind perhaps to people who don't like the movie but i do genuinely think there's a string of this in there um not in every criticism of the movie you're like you're allowed to not like a movie for perfectly legitimate reasons but i do think there's a bit of a string in some of the responses of the character that Barry Keoghan plays just hits a little too close to home for them. That here is this guy who hates the rich but also fetishizes them and desperately wants yeah. to be them. And uh, he goes that, to lengths. Yeah, and that that is maybe discomforting to some people criticizing the movie because they hate the rich but they really really want to be rich. Yeah, um, and mm. and that's the such the fascinating element about Oliver Quick. He. I love his... A lot of people are like, uh, he monologues at the end. Screw it. I freaking love his monologue at the mm. end. I love the whole, you're at the top, so you have no natural pre- predators. But that's not really true, is it? Fat dog sleeping, belly up. We have to talk about the three scenes that everyone talks about in this movie. First off is the bathtub scene, which yep. I remember seeing in the cinemas and my eyes going wide like oh my gosh like this movie is going for it look when he pressed his cheek up against the water i was like okay okay that's that's weird he's a weirdo but that's gonna be it and then he starts drinking and i'm like okay interesting that's a show is a choice uh this guy is if we didn't know he was sick in the head already by you know standing outside of uh jacob elordi's bath bedroom window and watching him have sex we know now that he's really off the deep end he's then, just slurping it down then he's then he's yeah then he's not drinking he's slurping he's, he's drinking he's like a not, guy not who's come out of the, the desert and has like found a puddle yeah. in an oasis somewhere he's like oh yeah this is the stuff <laughs> he, he, and, and and see the fucked up thing is he's not just drinking out of the bath he's drinking it out of the fucking drain yeah Ugh, it's disgusting um <laughs> then there's of course the other scene which is, another scene which is the cemetery scene which it's the is, mirror to the yeah. it's the mirrored scene it's him uh getting it on with Felix's grave yeah and exposes i think the pathology of that character better than any yeah. other scene in the movie in the sense that he's not just out to kill them all but he no. actually despite his what he himself would prefer i think does feel like a genuine attachment and is yeah. drawn to them in a way that makes him sort of hate them even more mm. um yeah he's and the way that it is put it, it brilliantly by the by felix's sister or cousin i can't remember which she says you're not a spider you're a moth you're attracted to pretty things bright things but you're gonna eat us you put holes in all of us out. and it's true and the third most iconic scene Ties, on the dance floor. Yes. Ties for me for the best ending of the year. Ties for me for the best scene of the year with a movie that I'm I think Harley and I both have as our number ones. Um it's just so like the whole the it's use so of good. music, that use of like that Emerald Fennell is, you know, she's now come up and we're getting this wave of millennials who are using music from yeah. that period as a way to evoke nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. You love to see it. I, I, it makes me feel seen. Yeah, but murder on the dance floor. Um, the way that it's used is just like it is. It is the mo- the part of this movie that will be remembered. It is the yeah. you know it is the the uh, the meeting scene at the beginning of the Godfather or uh, you know I'm your father in Empire Strikes Back. It is the scene that has where were you when the it cultural- happened. 
it is the scene that has entered the cultural consciousness from this movie. This movie did not do well in theaters, but once it went to Amazon, it exploded. And that mm. scene, I think, you know, it's just so deeply, <laughs> deeply and, fascinating. I, mean, I, I loved this movie up to that point, and I thought, brilliant, all of the m- themes and messages, the fact that it is basically a fucked up talented mr ripley i love that that it is taking all of these things and putting them together the moment that scene started and that song started i was like it's on my list Mm. it's high on my list (laughs) because it is the perfect cap on what this movie is saying that this guy has murdered and fucked his way to the top Mm. and he has manipulated everything in a way that is we have gone really far in, over the five minutes thing but, and we've gone I, on quite long and but. he's just dancing naked through salt burn i i do have to say this like, is his home now one last thing i love that you pay my rent karaoke scene mm. so fucking good um yeah so uh that is our top nine so we've only got the one to go uh now but um before we do that, why don't we go through our honourable mentions and our dishonourable mentions. So our honourable mentions are the movies that could have made it, but just didn't. Um, and uh, we've narrowed it down to five, haven't we, John? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, we'll just go alphabetically again. Harley, what are your honourable mentions? Uh, in no particular order, because you can't make me put these into any order. I refuse. Guardians of the Galaxy 3. The Iron Claw. Talk to me. Evil Dead Rise and The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. All right. What about you, John? Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Across the Spider-Verse, Guardians 3, The Iron Claw, and Scream 6. But basically, one of the big reasons why that's in my honorable mentions is who gives a fuck about movies? Um... My honourable mentions are in alphabetical order. Uh, Asteroid City, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, Evil Dead Rise, Fast X, and The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Okay, for Fast X, I couldn't... For Fast X, I couldn't get quite over the line. (laughs) It, it It was in the list. So, basically, what I was doing was I went through the list of movies we'd seen from the year, and I was like, what things stick out in my head that I could make an argument for? Fast X was on the list, but it had to be cold because I just think Nine was funnier for me personally. See, yeah, I know Harley and I are on the same team on this, but Nine, your your love of Nine is not something that uh, I can connect just with. Just the fact that it, it makes it seem like Roman has been crushed by a piece of falling debris that moment has stuck with me because I found it just so funny. Just the idea See, that and he I, would be... I can't even picture the scene you're talking about. What? I, I what? just thought that that okay. was hilarious. One of the funny scenes from Nine is when he's chained up in that place and Vin Diesel pulls the chains down and topples the entire thing. That's dumb as shit. But not <laughs> as right. dumb as shit as driving down a dam as it explodes. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> It's stupider than that. We watched that scene just earlier to sort of like recap the year. Dad said, that's stupid. (laughs) Like, the one thing that would have probably put it on my list 
would have been if there was a video of someone who was meant to be the Pope saying, we thank you, Dominic Toretto, for saving <laughs> the Vatican. He, he didn't quite save like, the Vatican, if, did if he? If that had happened, it's like, you were now part of the Vatican's family. That, that would have got me over the line, but unable to. All right. Um, so now why don't we move on to our dishonorable mention. We've each picked dishonorable mentions. A, a dishonorable mention, I should say. Basically, the most disappointing movie of the year for us. Not necessarily the worst, but the movie that we wanted to be so much better than it was. Uh, we are going to go into this, these ones in more detail than our honourable mentions. But uh, why don't you start us off, Harley? I think Harley and I... Hold on, hold on, hold on. I know you, that you're ramping up, you're doing... You're charging up your attack, but I want to let Lawson do his first because I feel like we've got the same one. All right. Well, mine shouldn't be much of a surprise to anyone who's been listening to the podcast over the last few months. It's easily the most controversial placement of any of the movies I've talked about today because a lot of people love, love, love this movie. It's nominated for a whole bunch of awards, and I just don't get it. It's Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, it I is, knew it! I knew it! It is the most overlong, self-indulgent, tone-deaf movie I've seen in a long time, and it's the most disconnected I've felt from the average critical discourse that I've felt in a long time. It's a very important story. It's a very important story told poorly. Um, that's the, the Here's the thing. It's got all of the parts of it that should work. It's got brilliant actors. Lily Gladstone is phenomenal. Robert De Niro is the best he's been in decades. Leonardo DiCaprio, excellent. Production Lithgow design. Lithgow is there. Lithgow is there. Production design, astonishing. Um, you know, the, the quality of the sets and the costumes, the... The music, the sound design, it's all magnificent. And it's at Scorsese, the center, for Christ's sake. And at the centre, well, I think Scorsese's the problem because Scorsese can't figure out, he hasn't been able to figure out for like 10 years how to make a movie that's not three hours long, three and a half hours long in this instance. And it kills the pace so, so badly. It is such damage. It does such damage to this movie's dramatic tension and heft. And then on top of it, You've got the fact that it's a movie that can't decide what it wants to be. It can't decide its tone. And to, I'm get, I've am get i gotten so tired of hearing people pat Martin Scorsese on the back when he tells this story about how, oh, it was originally going to be a story about the uh, FBI coming in to solve these murders of these um, Osage Native Americans. But then I realized that this was a story that needed to be told from the uh, Osage point of view. And so I rewrote it. I'm so tired of everyone patting him on the back for that because that's not what he's done. He's rewritten it so that it's told from the perspective of the white murderers. And like it just like the fact that Lily Gladstone is in so little of this movie, the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio, one of the murderers, is our chief protagonist, he has the most screen time followed closely thereafter by Robert De Niro, followed in a distant third by Lily Gladstone. It, it's a movie that is caught between these competing instincts. That there are, there are two ways to tell this movie, this story very effectively, I think. There is the original idea. There's the FBI coming in to investigate. If you turn it into a murder mystery, it's more traditional. It doesn't centre the, um, the Native American uh, point of view in a way that I think would, you know, be damaging to it in this day and age but it would be effective as a film and i think powerful as a film the other 
aspect is to actually do what Martin Scorsese thought he had done and actually make it from the Native American perspective. Equally effective, equally powerful, more so actually. But what he's done is this weird limbo third option that does neither. And it really is something that I just, I mean, I can't, I can't see what everyone's talking about. People mm. love the movie, and, and I don't begrudge them that. You know, This is not me saying that you shouldn't like this movie if you do. If you get something out of it that I don't, you know, more power to you. That's the great thing about art. But I, all of the virtues that people talk about this movie having, I see the opposite. And that's an issue for me that I just can't overcome. So, yes, my most disappointing film of the year. I, I could have seen that coming. Uh, so I'm assuming that both John and I have the same yep. uh, dishonorable mention, but I'm going to lead the discussion on this one. And it's been the case ever since I seen it last February. It's Skinnerberg. <laughs> oh, we are so doing an episode on Skinnerberg. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I might not have even put Skinnerberg on my list of things to watch were it not for your You'll fucking Skinner. regret it, dude. It's dull, dull, deathly, dull. For people who don't know, I I have been spamming Harley with online articles listing the best films of 2023 that contain Skinnerink at some point in the listing, just to, you know, torture him. And Lawson, I appreciate that, because every <laughs> single time I see it, it makes me laugh. Is it a desperate laugh? Absolutely. Look, look. I have a lot to say, then I'll let John get to what he has to say. I see what everyone is saying, alright? I see they it's a it's a perspective thing, right? It is a movie that is framed and shot from the perspective of a child left alone at home at night. And then all of the terrors and the nightmares that can stem from this. I, I see it. I can I intellectualize it. I really do. It's analog horror. I get that. I love it. Fine. Wicked. For a 15 to 20 minute short film, I can buy it. I can buy that explanation. This is an hour and 40 that feels like three. It is This felt longer dull. than Napoleon did. It felt longer than Napoleon. It is the exact opposite problem to, to Napoleon, in fact. This has... Napoleon had too much plot, too little time. Right? Skinnerberg has no plot, too much time. I am a massive defender of the short film. I will go to bat for the, the short story as an artistic medium, perhaps the greatest way to deliver a horror story. There's no better way to do it, in my honest opinion. Because you, you don't guarantee anybody's safety in a short story. You have a strong concept. What the hell are you doing making it feature length? To, to get it to the festival circuit? I understand the, the, the impulse, but... You don't have anything beyond the first 15 minutes. You've got nothing. It, is it effective as a tone piece? I guess. It gave me a headache, which I don't think it should. I just, I don't, I don't see how this is on people's top 10 lists. I simply don't. Because it, it is trying something experimental. Okay, okay. But it's an hour and 40 minutes long. The experiment doesn't last that long. The curiosity doesn't last that long. Like, I'm not going to watch one of those uh, Shutter Gulags for the entire span of time that they're on. I'm not going to watch this for an hour and 40. It's just... I can intellectualize 
what the filmmaker is doing. And that's fine. I get it. You want to make House of Leaves. Wicked. I get that. I see that. But the problem is format. This movie should not have been done this way. This is incorrect. <laughs> it's incorrect. Look, I, I get what this movie is doing, and to double up on what Harley is saying, I can intellectualize it. I get it. I get it. But this needs to be shorter. It is taking so long to do nothing in particular. It It is an example of a movie that has its brain in the right place, but it's taking so long to get there. This needed to be a short film, because I imagine if this was a short film, it would cook. Because yeah. the tension is everything. You cannot hold tension over an hour and 40 minutes, and they do absolutely nothing with it. That's what turns the concept into poison. It is, it is just a, a short film of this could be great. It could be like The Backrooms, right? Which has got a lot of buzz, is really, really interesting. But you bite off more than you can chew. And I hate to see that because you had a killer concept that you just stretched. You stretched so hard it broke. And now after this, I really don't need to hear about Skinnamarink anymore from Harley. Yes. Until our episode. I'm going to wait until you're least expecting it, Harley. Don't you <laughs> dare okay, to ruin your movie day. and understand You're going to hate it mean. too. I promise you that. <sighs> what if Especially I love it, Especially because you're going to be watching it alone. <laughs> what you're going to be watching it, it alone. Yeah, but what if I love it? What if <laughs> What if we do this episode? Yes, yes, Lawson. <laughs> what if you do? What if you do love it? What if I hate it but pretend to love it just to irritate you? <laughs> Honestly? I would you woke up and chose violence today, my friend. <laughs> I, I would have I would have respect for that, Lawson, and I don't think you'd be able to keep the con up. No. I don't think you'd be able to keep the con up. I feel like at some point you'd drop the ball. Alright, well let's go to end our uh episode on a more positive note by talking about our number one picks. Uh we'll start off with Harley's, but I'm pretty sure Harley and I have the same pick. Um it's a movie that Jean's already mentioned that both of us have indicated is higher, and we haven't talked about it yet. It a must lot have, higher, in fact. It, it must, of course, be Oppenheimer. It's got to um, be. <laughs> so uh, I love this movie. I think that this is this movie is not to keep uh, you know keep on the negative track, but I think it's everything that Killers of the Flower Moon wanted to be. It's a historical epic about really important things that explores morality, explores social systems. Uh, is three hours long, <laughs> but unlike Killers of the Flower Moon, it actually needs its three hours to tell its story. It is so tightly woven. It is this incredible Rube Goldberg machine of a movie that has absolutely everything lined up exactly where it has to be. All of the characters are plotted out in exactly the right uh, amount. The... Uh, the way that Nolan cuts together all of the different threads uh, jumping all over the place in timeline. It's complex, it's complicated, but it builds up to be one of the most impactful and affecting movies of the year. And that ending, my God, that's... I sat there in the theatre and I go, oh, are they going there? And yes, it's the grimmest, grimmest note I've seen a movie end on in a long, long time. It's mm. essentially just like... And it's a sentiment I agree with. Nuclear war is coming. It doesn't matter if it's five years from now, ten years from now, or 500 years from now. 
the genie's out of the bottle and one day that Chekhov's gun is going to go off. The second that that technology was invented, it guaranteed that on a long enough timeline it was going to be used. And uh, to end on that note, smack us on the ass as we head out of the theater. <laughs> like, I gotta admire the balls of it. I gotta and, admire the gumption. And more than that, we've been shown throughout the film the damage that it's doing to this one man. That sitting with that his- in his head. In terms of his legacy, in terms of his relationship with his wife, his political capital, his own peace of mind, the damage that it's done, it's basically eroded what's left of his spirit. It's, he has become death, destroyer of worlds, but in the sense of he's become a hollow man in the process. Look, like, when the trailers came out... When we went to the movies before Oppenheimer was released, when we watched that trailer all together, I turned to Lawson and said, that is the story of the man who killed the world. And I agree. That final note, that final kick in the ribs, is pitch perfect. Um, And that being said, Killian Murphy, my god. Mm. He's oh. electric. The whole cast, I mean, Killian Murphy is in a dead heat with Paul Giamatti for Best Actor, but everyone mm. seems to think that Robbie Downey, Robert Downey Jr. is walking away with Supporting Actor, and he yeah. is so good. Like, it is it is a, such a second wind for him in a way that I think bodes so well for his post-MCU career. Desperately needed, um, I think. Yeah, like, Doctor Doolittle was unfortunate, but uh, now, <laughs> like, it reminds... <laughs> He was so good as Iron Man. He was so good as Iron Man, and he spent so long as Iron Man, and I'm glad that we got him as Iron Man. But um, this is a reminder that Hollywood desperately needed that this is a guy who can do so many different things. Yeah. Mm. And um, I, he will deserve that Oscar. And he's so great. The the film itself is expected to win Best Picture by yeah. most people. I can and see it because this will be the. Just to say, this will be the first time since two thousand and three that my own Best Picture for the year and the Oscars Best Picture line up because that mm. was the Return of the King year. Ah, but was I not correct last year with my pick? Yes, you were. Yeah, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, but I'm John on the and roll. I. But John and I chose um, the superior choice of the menu. and hey, uh... I'm just saying, I'm on a roll. <laughs> Sometimes the Oscars get it right. I, I think Oppenheimer is so incredible because it is buoyed by incredible performances. Not just our leads in terms of Emily Blunt and Killian Murphy and Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr., Jr., but also all of the other people that just kind of show up. Uh Casey Affleck as the coldest man you've ever seen on screen. Just the way that he's like, he's just a shark. Um, Dane DeHaan shows up as this weedy little fuck who you know is going to screw Oppenheimer in the end. Uh, You can see it in his eyes. I think Killian Murphy is incredible. He, what Killian Murphy's been able to do is essentially jump down J. J. Robert Oppenheimer's throat and wear his skin. That's basically what he's done. It's such it's, an embodiment. It's an it's a complete encapsulation of the man. And but I agree that Robert Downey Jr. is absolute fire here. That, that 
the it looks music. like he's going to jump over the desk and throttle the members of that committee. He looks like he's going to go absolutely ape shit. Like the music, and, the score is yeah. just it elevates everything. It's and what Christopher Nolan can do without being constrained by action. Yeah. The editing. We've got to move piece. on, guys. The five minutes has run out, and I've got to yeah. get up at a quarter to six tomorrow morning yeah. and go to work. <laughs> so, and I haven't Phenomenal eaten dinner yet. Phenomenal movie. So. Um, all right, your movie. I think we all know it, Jean. It's yep. Do you want to say it? Bo is afraid. The moment this movie started, I was in. I've seen a bunch of. Uh, the short films that oh, yeah, uh, he's made. And I watched the original Bo is Afraid short film. This takes that and it builds on it in the coolest way possible. This is a almost three-hour therapy session with Ariasta, and I couldn't be happier. Just being able to peer inside this guy's mind, the fact that it's a mix of all of the things that I've liked over the course of this year. It's got the brilliant performances and acting from something like Oppenheimer. It's got the focus on design from Poor Things. The ability to just have weird little freaks of something like Saltburn. Or big freaks. It, or, or big freaks in terms of the cock monster. But the performances here, Joaquin Phoenix as Bo, the performance is so fully embodied that it actively damages his Napoleon <laughs> in a way that I think is absolutely incredible. It, that, he's not kidding. He's not kidding. It's like, like, he carries some of that energy into Napoleon. It's incredible. It is, it's incredible that my favourite movie <laughs> of the year has damaged this Napoleon film. Um, I thought the story went in so many interesting ways that it's all of these things that Ariasta seems to be afraid of. The degradation of the family unit, abuse amongst family members, the being convinced to do things he knows aren't right, this terror of the outside world encroaching in. And I'm not the even going to try and psychoanalyze the cock I don't want to even try to psychoanalyze him. Because there's so much here. The fact that it's a recursive story, the fact that everything seems predetermined by Mona, who is played brilliantly by Patti Lapone, who absolutely takes every scene, unhinges her jaw, and swallows it whole like a fucking snake. My it's- my fav- my personal favorite sequence is the stuff with the pl- uh, the theater players in the forest. I love forest. that sequence that whole with the theater. Sequence is just utterly gorgeous. I love that little story that's being told because by the end there's that moment that where one of the kids says to him but if you've never had sex, how how are we here? And that moment Rosebow out it kicks him out of being immersed in such a way that feels violent. Well, it's not just that he was coming up with that story in his own mind. Yeah, and it this movie did so many things that I just absolutely loved. And it I got a lot went... watching like actors just show up in this. Julian Richings yeah, Nathan... rocks up. Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane <laughs> is the king of the weirdos here, and it's to my 
great disappointment that we've been unable to see Dix the Musical, because I feel like seeing Nathan Lane in that movie with his weird sewer boys would be... He's not kidding, they're actually called sewer boys. It probably would have ended up on my list, because A24 has not missed for me this year, and hasn't missed for me with the movies that it's that they've released. There is just something about this movie which makes my brain feel fuzzy and that makes me happy. I love how it's like it's distinct four chapters. Mm. Yeah. And- there's the stuff at his apartment, there's the stuff with the the creepy messed up family, uh there's the stuff with the players in the forest, and there's the stuff where he returns home. Where we get a surprise Richard Kind, which is nice. I appreciate that. I don't that. think it was a surprise because I, I quite, recognized his voice. I didn't quite recognize the voice till, till we saw it, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I'll tell you what was a surprise: the fact that when that guy breaks through the window, he sees the cock monster. He's sent there to kill Bo, but he goes directly after the cock monster, stabbing it and shooting it. Look, I love this movie so thoroughly, and the ending is just the perfect cap because it summarizes mm. everything that not only Bo was afraid of, the audience was afraid was going to happen, and everything Ari Aster is afraid of. Yeah, I haven't bit I haven't said much, but it's my number nine. Um it's I'm um, we're already running long, so I'm just gonna leave it at the fact that I love that Ari Aster can make this movie. I love that he mm, is yeah. at a point in his career where he can command the budget. Um, he has the, both the means and the will to make this film, and I think it's re- actually really important that uh, creative people, we have people like that who are going to make stories like this, regardless what you think of the outcome. Um, I think it's really important to have. Uh, Weirdest but, movie of the year. But that is our our uh, top ten lists, each of us. Um, I have, as we have been going, uh, doing our usual uh overall rankings so i've given our number one picks a score of 10 and our number 10 picks a score of one everything in between uh accordingly matched and uh i've added up what our consensus picks are our number 10 consensus pick with both of them having four points john wick chapter four and mission impossible dead reckoning our number nine both of them having five points Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, and A Haunting in Venice. Our number eight, having six points, is The Holdovers. Our number seven, having eight points, is a tie between Asteroid City and Leave the World Behind. Our number six, having 11 points, is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Our number five, having 17 points, is Poor Things. Our number four, having 18 points, is Barbie. Our number three, having 21 points, is Bo is Afraid. Our number two, having 23 points, is Saltburn. And our number one, having 26 points, is Oppenheimer. Um, so before we move into our wrap-ups, uh, why don't we all just run through our lists one more time for Prosperity. Why don't you do it uh, to start us off, Harley? My number 10 is Asteroid City. My number nine is The Last Voyage of the Demeter. My number eight is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. My number seven is Across the Spider-Verse. My number six is A Haunting in Venice. My number five is Saltburn. My number four is Poor Things. Number three goes to Barbie. Number two goes to Bo is Afraid. And my favorite movie of 2023 is Oppenheimer. 
For me, my number 10 is Evil Dead Rise. My number 9 is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. My number 8 is Talk to Me. My number 7 is John Wick 4. My number 6 is Barbie. My number 5 is Oppenheimer, because I couldn't really split those guys apart. They're very close. Uh, number 4, Asteroid City. Number 3, Saltburn. Slurp, slurp. Number 2 is Poor Things. And number 1 is Bo is Afraid. Uh, my number 10 is Poor Things. My number 9 is Bo is Afraid. My number 8 is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. My number 7 is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. My number 6 is Barbie. My number 5 is The Holdovers. My number 4 is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. My number 3 is Leave the World Behind. My number 2 is Saltburn. And my number 1 is Oppenheimer. Uh, so, uh, Harley, you have some extra awards to give out. Yes. So, I have two awards. The first is the Mole Man Award for Physical Comedy. The Mole Man Award uh, explains the greatest act of physical comedy of the year, uh, mirroring that of the short film that Hans Mole Man made in that one episode of The Simpsons where he gets struck in the nads by a football. Aptly titled, Man Gets Hit by Football. Yes. The Mormon Award this year goes to No One Can Save You When That Alien Falls Off the Roof of the House. It's very, very good. <laughs> it is funny. very good. It is very good in a movie that is meant to just be incredibly tense and does have some tension in it. It's just good to see that some aliens also have problems staying vertical. Yeah. However, my special award, the Golden Barney for Emotional Engagement, which mirrors the short film in the same episode of The Simpsons that Barney Gumble made, the don't cry for me, I'm already dead thing. Uh, that award has changed in its definition for me over the years, uh, but it has come to mean the movie that made me closest to crying. It is the scene where Barbie becomes human. Uh, that whole sequence where she meets Ruth, talks to Ruth about what it means to be human, and then... Ruth shows her, shows her what it means to be human. With all those uh, home videos from cast and crew uh, sort of edited, edited together with the beautiful, beautiful song, What Was I Made For? It's just very, very moving. So if you'd like to reach us, you can find us at our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and with recommendations. What do you think about our lists this year? What is your top 10? What are your honourable and dishonourable mentions? And what would you give my two Simpsons-based awards to? That is the Golden Barney and the Mole Man Award. Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps, you're commenting on the episode specifically, and on others, it is for the show on the whole. By my understanding, Podbean accepts episode-specific feedback, and the other services such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify offer the shows on the whole. Your mileage simply varies depending on which service you use. I know quite a lot of you, uh, during my look at the analytics, use Spotify. But please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. In the future, naturally, we still have the Oscars. The Oscars panel, however, is now run extremely by machines. Almost completely. There are a couple of human actors, Richard Kind, John Lithgow, other such respected performers... Uh, this year, the Best Picture Award has gone to... Oh, that's strange. Huh. There is a sequel to... Skinnamarink 2, Skinnamarink 2, Skinnamarink... <laughs> we have a sequel to Saltburn. Uh, I didn't expect that one. That one kind of ended as it normally would. 
Uh, Skin Rink was uh, pegged for best production design. Uh, Skin Rink 2, mind you. But yeah, that's the future. Somewhat bleak, but I'm excited for Saltburn 2. So, Lawson, what have you got prepared for us going into next week? Well, next week we will be doing a, uh, a movie that I am very interested in investigating because I've seen the movie that it is based on, but I have not seen this remake. We will be talking about the 2012 remake of Paul Verhoeven's classic, question mark, science fiction film, Total Recall. Uh, If you would like to follow along at home, you can find this remake available for streaming on Binge, Stan, and 7 Plus in Australia. It is also available for purchase on the Amazon Fetch Apple and YouTube store rental also, but you can only find it available for four in 4K on the Stan, uh, on Stan and on the Apple store. Have you guys seen the original Total Recall? We've yes. seen both. Uh, I'm gonna have to. Ch- I'm gonna have to check out the short story they're based on. People love the original. I don't. I don't hate it. It's really silly. It's very yes. My favorite part of it is when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is investigate is um disguised as that lady and then just starts freaking out. Personally, my favourite favorite moment is when the guy uh, reveals Klaus who underneath the shirt. Quaid! Quaid! <laughs> it's, it's the only it's thing this remake is missing. I love I love the little Claw 2 break. I love it. Quaid! Love it. Quaid! So yeah, uh, join us next week for when we discuss the remake to Total Recall. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis. <laughs>